Hi, everyone. Thank you again for being here at Full Armor Apologetics with my podcast. Um, the man I have right here in front of me is a very, very special person. Very excited for this one. Um, uh, this is a very special edition. And what I mean by that is that um, all the way throughout uh, the, um, let's say, consensus of what scholars have to say about the biblical manuscripts, we have some good names out there called Daniel Wallace, uh, uh, Bart Emma, for instance, they've put, they did some contributions, uh, contributions, but the thing that I uh, had a little bit of problem with that there was still information out there that was negated. And the man that I have right here in front of me is by many apologists, who I respect, they call him the most knowledgeable, the most humble, the most hardworking, no one other than Sir James E. Snap. And uh, Mr. Snap is a scholar, uh, he's also a pastor at the Curtisville uh, Christian Church. Um, in everything he does, as far as I can sense, he loves the Lord. He lives for the Lord. Uh, he has so much knowledge about manuscripts and like things like these, for instance. We got here for P52. This is like uh, his bread and butter. So the sessions that we are going to uh, address are uh, Mark 16, 9 to 20. The last verse of Mark, because that's, uh, particular consensus about and we have the pericope adultera john 7 53 to 8 11 and these two we're going to address them in a full session of all the notes that we have to this date and james is not first off thank you yet again for being here i'm uh, very glad to have you here i'm happy to be here so i would say i would say like let's get to it uh, i have here uh couple of pictures. I hope everything is crystal clear. And I have here like this one. Yes. So I would say like, uh, let's get to it. All right. Um, first, Mark 16, 19, 20. Um, in, in several Bible editions, such as the NIV and the NL, NLT and some others, uh, you'll see notes in the Bible, often headings in between verses 8 and 9 which say that our earliest and best our, our earliest manuscripts do not have mark 16 19 and it's important to get an idea of the quantities that are being talked about now quantities do not always uh determine which reading to adopt you can't do text textual criticism uh, by majority vote um, but in this case we have a very small amount of manuscripts we're looking at that don't have Mark 1690 20. Uh, there are basically three of them, and only two of them are old. The third one is manuscript 304, which is probably from the 1100s, and its text is mainly Byzantine. So it's not considered nearly as important as the early two. Uh, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, here we have in before you on the left hand side uh, Codex Vaticanus. This is the manuscript of the Vatican Library. You can go online and see the whole thing page for page. But on the left is the way it really is. It does not have Mark 16.9-220. It has Mark 16.8 where it ends there at F. Abantogar and then it has a subscription note 
well, basically the, uh, the, the closing title of the book, that's all there is. What I have done is, many people have wondered, what about this unique blank space that Codex Vaticanus has after verse 8? Usually the scribe of Codex Vaticanus does not leave space after the column in which he ends a book. Now, it's not unusual at all to have blank space in the column. In that second column, that's nothing to, to, to uh, be concerned about. But this, sec this third column that you see there, that is blank in the manuscript, is unique. It is the only um, such column in the entire New Testament portion. There were some blank columns also in the Old Testament portion, but contrary to what Dan Wallace has claimed, those blank spaces are, are easy to account for. They have to do with, with production steps that were taken in the, manu in the production of the, of the manuscript. There were cases where one scribe's work finished and another scribe's work began. Or before the Psalms, it is a case where simply, simply the... Uh, the format changes from three columns per page to two columns per page. And then at the very end of the Old Testament in, in uh, Daniel, or Bell and the Dragon, uh, of course there's blank space left over there because you want to begin Matthew, as pretty much all manuscripts do, at the beginning of a first page. But here in Codex Vaticanus, in this blank space, uh, is there enough room for Mark 16, 9 through 20? Because the suspicion is that this was left as what's known as memorial space. Uh, scribes sometimes when they contained, oh sorry, when, when they were examining two exemplars, two master copies that they were using as the, the main copies to, to work from, uh, sometimes when, when one manuscript had more text than the other, they might follow the one that was shorter, but they would leave manuscript space or space on the page as sort of memorial space to show, show that there was something there in an exemplar that they had recollection of. When the case of Codex Vaticanus, at the end of Mark, we see here this blank space. And if you reconstruct Mark 16, 19, 20, using a little tighter letters than usual, if you were to compact them just slightly, which I have done, using the handwriting of the main scribe, the original scribe of the manuscript, I simply cut and pasted the individual letters from elsewhere on this page. And using those letters, I have reconstructed Mark 16, 19, 20, and the closing title. And as you can see, it fits rather snugly, but it does fit there in the closing space. If I were to use the scribe's normal, normal means of writing, you would have about four, between two to, two to four lines left over. But Scribes back then knew how to compact the lettering when they needed to. We see the scribe of Codex Sinaiticus do that routinely. So you can see from this that uh, contrary to what you may have heard, Mark 16, 9 20 does fit in that blank space. 
it's a strong indication that the scribe was aware of verses 9 through 20, but it was simply not in the master copy that he was using. So that's Codex Vaticanus. And with that, we have finished one third of all Greek manuscripts that don't have Mark 69 through 40. The other 1,642 or so uh, do have Mark 16:19-20. But that's Codex Vaticanus. It's a very major manuscript. It, it, it's, uh, it's been used uh, very much since the 1800s. And so that's manuscript number one that we're going to look at today. Uh, then we have Codex Vaticanus. I mean, excuse me, Codex Sinaiticus, which is the next. Now, by the way, you'll have to forgive me. I've kind of fallen into the habit of calling it Codex Sinaiticus, although I know very well that the correct way to pronounce it is Codex Sinaiticus. There's no but doubt in my mind. <laughs> but that's next in line. Yeah. Next slide. Yes. There we go. You see here the page where Mark ends. It's in that second column there. It's a uh, not the best picture, but it's based on my own uh, uh, facsimile that I have. But you can go online to the codexsynaticus.org website and you can zoom in on it as close as you like. Well, almost, but you can zoom on it well. Also, I've made uh, some representations of the, the pages. These four sheets are not written by the original, by the, by the main scribe, of the manuscript. This is what was called a cancel sheet. The page on which Mark ends and on which uh, Luke begins, if you could picture it as a, like like a church bulletin that you would have in four pages, front and back, front, back, front, back, and fold them together. That's what we're looking at here. And this scribe, uh, he seems to have been aware of the, the Verses as uh, the missing verses as well, but he was determined not to include them. And this particular cancel sheet made for this particular scribe, not the main scribe of the manuscript. It's for somebody else, probably the proofreader of the, the manuscript. He sees the main scribe's initial work, and the main scribe has made some terrible mistake in the text of Luke chapter, chapter 1. He probably left out a paragraph. And so the, the corrector, he sees this is too big a mistake to try to correct with just a little note. We're going to have to redo the entire four pages. And by we, he means I. And the difficult part is going to be the text of Luke because the main scribe left out something of Luke. He's going to have to add it into the text of Luke, but he is going to have to also still make the last line of Luke that he's making, I made on the following page. If you look at that versus replacement page, it's containing Mark 15, excuse me, Mark 14, 54 through 68, and also Luke verses 1 through 56 of chapter 1. At the beginning, the scribe has his, about his normal rate of letters per column. 
But if you look down in Luke, you'll see it's much greater. It's 679, 725, 687, 702. Uh, this is much, a much tighter amount. The scribe is clearly compressing his letters at these, these points. And the reason he's doing that is because he has to compress his lettering in order to fit in the text that the first scribe left out. But oddly, in Mark, on the fourth column, either through sheer inattentiveness or through something else, for some reason, the rate jumps up to 707. Now, I can't read the scribe's mind, but what I think happened is that the scribe, when he began to write his cancel sheet, he started in this column, column 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. He started in column 11 because that's where the hard part was. That's where he had his challenge. He starts writing in Luke and writes 681 columns per page, 672 columns per page, and, and so forth. After he success, successfully writes, writes the form of Luke that he wants to write, then he goes back to the beginning of the pages and starts to write the, the text of Mark, beginning in chapter 14. He continues to write the first two columns uh, perfectly naturally. Then possibly he forgets what he's doing and he starts to write in very comp compressed lettering again. Now, if you had continued to write in compressed lettering, I think he could have fit all of Mark 16, 9 through 20 in his writings. But that's really what he's trying to do. After he writes in compressed lettering in this column, he realizes what he has done because he's been writing in compressed lettering here. Maybe he just ha had a slight momentary yeah moment of insight. Forgetful, forgetful, forgetting yeah. that he didn't need to write in compressed lettering anymore. When he turns the page, he goes back to writing a little less than his normal rate. He's kind of compensating. So he writes a little less than his normal rate here and here. But when he gets to chapter 16, toward the first part, he accidentally makes a mistake. And he skips a line, the, the proofreader. He skips a line. And when he turns, when he gets to the next page, this is page three of the cancel sheet, he realizes that wait a minute, since he's since now he himself has left out a line, he doesn't have quite enough letters to complete the space that he's reserved for Mark's text, and so he very drastically expands his lettering. While well, his normal rate is about 630, in this third column, he stretches out his lettering. When he gets to, to the name of Jesus, um, usually you would contract Jesus' name. You wouldn't write it out in full. It's a sacred name. But in this case, because he has so much space that he feels that he needs to fill, he expands that, that name. And he writes out the letters very, very, very uh, expanded. That gives him enough letters to have something to put 
in this column. If he had not stretched out his lettering, he would have, he himself would have had a blank column here, but he didn't want to leave a blank column. When he writes the end of Mark, he writes his decorative design very emphatically. It's almost like a fence before the closing title of the book. And so this scribe, I believe, knew about Mark 16, 19, 20, but he had made the decision not to include it. And you can kind of see that that was on, kind of on his mind by how he decisively makes a very firm uh, closing decorative design and also stretches out his lettering so he does not leave a blank column. Hmm. Well, that's Codex Sinaiticus. And that's the second uh, manuscript that does not have Mark 16, 19, 20 in Greek. It's, it's very interesting to see that there is a certain particular characteristic of what the text does and what the, the scribe, for instance, would have thought at the moment by his actions. So like uh, when I was at school, for instance, I had exact the same tendencies. So you can see the human side of, uh, of the codexes in this instance. It, it makes completely sense just when you look at it already. Shall we go yes. to the next slide? The, the little details that you see are, are quite significant. Yeah. These little details are more significant than they seem, although they're hardly ever mentioned in commentaries. That's the whole problem. <laughs> now, it is one of the earlier, some four or 500s, I think the 400s, and um, it's online. But the problem is, it's a palimpsest, which means it's a manuscript that has been scraped. Yeah. Uh, the initial writing has been scraped away. And so getting to see that that lower writing is a needed parchment to make a new book. And so mm. he took the old book, scraped off the letters that were there, to make the new book, and you see, if you see on the left, uh, this these writings are from the sermons of Ephraim Cyrus, but it's the writing underneath it that is the text of Mark 16:20. If you carefully digitally remove the upper writing, then it is here on on this this page. This has had the upper writing artificially re removed to mm. some extent. And so you can see the lower writing. Enough to see that Codex C contained Mark 16, 9 through 20. We don't have the opening verses of, on this page. But here you can see Mark 16, 14 through 20, uh, written very clearly in this uh, digitally. C uh, has these verses. But that's not the only one. And you can go on to the next slide. Uh, Codex D is a copy with the Western text. Uh, the Western text was used very early. It's used in the 100s. It's used in the 200s. So having a copy with the Western text gives us uh, a window on the kind of text that was being used back then. 
the manuscript itself is not as old as the 200s and 300s. It's more or less from the, I would say from the 500s, although David Parker uh, assigns it to about the year 400. But here in this copy, uh, this is a from a facsimile, and you can see very plainly there, verse 9 and so forth, beginning at that point. It's it damaged. It doesn't have the final page, but you can see that when it was in its pristine form, it did. And there's verse 9 and the verses following. That's Codex D, another early manuscript. Mark Ehrman calls it one of our earliest manuscripts. And uh, so any, anybody that claims that Mark 69 through 20 is only in later manuscripts, uh, I'm looking at you, publishers of the message paraphrase. Uh, they'll simply be wrong. You've just seen it in Codex C. And here we see it in Codex D. And we can continue. You can go ahead and proceed to the next, next slide. Can you see the, the slide, Codex W? Am I picking up okay? Uh, could you uh, rephrase, to, uh, could you say it again? You can continue to the, to the next slide, please. Yes. I, I, I went Here's to- another early manuscript. Uh, I would put this manuscript, Codex W. Codex uh, should... W, there, is, there it is, yes. Okay, it just had a little bit of a delay, no problem. Internet is a bit slow, but we, uh, we can hear. Uh, this is Codex W, which was discovered in 1906 or so. 1906. No, it's perfectly fine. Uh, this is another early manuscript. Codex W is the only manuscript that has the what's called the clear... No problem. It's fine. Uh, Codex W, although you can't see it really in focus here, that's all right. Uh, this also contains Mark 16, 20. It also has a little bit more than Mark 16, 20. Between verses 14 and 14, and this was a reading that was mentioned by, by Jerome. Here we see it in Greek uh, as its, its only known Greek representative. But here we have, have Codex W. And by the way, I'm going to put off my Can you still hear me? Okay, something happened there, but it's okay. Yeah. Can you see me? I can uh, see you and I can hear you. I can hear you too. And we're back. <laughs> and we're back. Okay. As I was saying, uh, just to pick up where we left off. The, uh, this is Codex W. Yeah, this is Codex W, and Codex W was was a discovered of was its discovery was financed and, and the manuscript was purchased by uh, Charles Lyne Freer, 
and he has a gallery in Washington, D.C., where you can see this manuscript. Although, probably in the display, you can only see a few pages. But uh, Codex W, here we see Mark 16, one, verses 1 through 20. And in between the verses 14 and 15, you have the Purologion. But again, it, it is another early manuscript. I would assign it just, just a tad before the year 400, but if the person wants to do, do, do later, a little bit later, that's okay. But Codex W is an interesting manuscript because it is what is called block mixed, which means that different, when you look in different places in the manuscript, you will find text from different locales, the text which we think of as being in different locales. Obviously, at some point, they were all in the same locale because this manuscript was made. In, in Matthew, Codex W is strongly Byzantine. In other places, it'll be strongly Alexandrian. But the thing to see is that in Codex W, it has Mark 16, 9 to 20. And uh, that's Codex W, another early manuscript with the ending of Mark, verses 9 to 20, mm. with the Purologion thrown in there as a bonus. And it's important to note that uh, Contrary to what the NET first edition stated, the Purologion is not a different ending. As you can see, it has verse 9 right after verse 8, and then it goes down to verse 14. At verse 14 is where it has dependent ending of itself. It was simply an interpolation, which we find in this particular manuscript. It is not a, a different ending. You, you know what I clear. You know what I come Anyone to think actually looks at the manuscript. I think by now there are so many scholars who say like uh, yeah we don't have Any to questions find. so far. Yeah, just rather a remark uh, a while ago you said that all these scholars they are proclaiming stuff out there but they didn't look good enough and you see all these manuscripts do have the ending and you're all thinking to yourself like you were too soon. There's so much yet to be discovered and uh, very knowledgeable, very insightful. And it, it just is amazing that to know that the final verses of Mark are were in the original. So that'll be it. Shall I go to the next, uh, next slide? Yes, I would, I would challenge those who have I, I would challenge now press or whoever is in charge of printing the message Bible paraphrase. Okay. But uh, you've seen Codex C, you've seen Codex D, you've seen Codex W. You know, when, when, like, like to paraphrase the message, that tell the readers that only the later manuscripts have Mark 16, 19-20, they're basically deceiving them. I don't think they're necessarily intentionally doing so, but the reader is just as deceived all the same. And so it would be really nice for them to go back to their book and stop 
deceiving people. Amen. We can proceed now to the next slide. Yep. You can go ahead and advance the slide now. Yeah, there's a latency of a couple of seconds. Please. please. Yeah. If you would to the, uh, to the next slide, there's yeah. more to see. Mr. Snap, I did so, but uh, uh, it, it, the Zoom is a little bit oh. late. Well, you are is a long way away from where I am, so that, yeah, that's, that's true. understandable. <laughs> Uh, once the slides um, shows itself, you can uh, tell me because um, it is recording, isn't it? That's okay. We'll just have to sit back and put up with the lag. Yeah. But uh, this, these are rather famous pages of manuscript. Whenever you Uh, maybe just uh, try again. Uh, wait a minute. Wait, because it is, yeah. Uh, I am still sharing and it is still recording. Oh, I see my kitten has wandered into my office. <laughs> but can you still hear clearly? Can you still hear me? Okay. I can still see and hear you clearly, yes. But you don't see the uh, the screen share. I'm just waiting for the slide to move. That's weird because wait. Mm. Oh, well, I have a chance. I will introduce you to Duna, my kitten. Wait, I can't. Wait, your camera has shut off. <laughs> I can't see the kitten. Um, I see your face and I see my face. Oh, there it is. Okay. We shall continue. Bye, dear. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I, we were there. Yes. Yeah. It was right. Well, I, I put the kitten down just now. Great. Okay. Um. I think I'm on mute. You're on mute. I can still hear, clearly hear you. So there's no problem. But I can't see you. Can you hear me? I can hear you cl clearly. Okay. Can, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. I affirm it. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you 
Oh, okay. 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 This is the screen that I wanted to show you next. Okay. We have Hamley One manuscripts. Now, and it, uh, Robert Wall of New Testament Textual Criticism would probably say this is even more harmonized than the Byzantine decks. But in manuscripts 1, 205, 286, 209 and 1585, excuse me, 1582, they have a note between Mark 16.8 and Mark 16.9. And the note means in some of the cop copies, the evangelist work is finished here, and so do Eusebius Pamphilius Canons. Now, Eusebius Pamphili, uh, that was simply another name, his mentor of sorts was named Pamphilus, and so he took that to show that he was in the same line of, of tradition. Well, the note says, in many, this also appears. Now, these are manuscripts that have Mark 16 and 20, but sometimes much is made of this note. But notice that it also says, in many, this also appears. Oftentimes, people describe this note and mentioning that in some copies the evangelist work finishes at, at verse 8, but they don't mention that the same note also says in manuscripts 1522, 1110, 1192, and 1210, the same note appears except the later note does not have the part about Eusebius Pamphilius canons. The, now, what were Eusebius Pamphilius canons? Uh, these were a, a series of cross-references that Eusebius had made. This appears in many Gospels copies, where at the beginning you'll see the, the charts. Oftentimes they're ornately decorated, sometimes they're very plain, but sometimes they're ornately decorated. Especially, by the way, in Armenian manuscripts, the Armenian scribes, sometimes decorate them very opulently. It is very impressive how the Eusebian canon tables are decorated, often with pictures of animals or birds, even fountains. But in those copy, in, in these copies that we see, the family one copies, and manuscripts that aren't, are, aren't quite, quite in family one, but they do have some similarities, this note, which appears in, in just around 15 manuscripts, the note says, in many this also appears. Now, this note uh, is there, not in a lot of copies, but in this particular group, it is there. And so that is the extent of that note. And you can see, if you work to compare the notes, that oftentimes you can even compare when the line breaks appear, and you can see that these are not independent notes. These are all descendants of an earlier exemplar. The, this note goes back probably pretty far. As far as family one goes, uh, back to an exemplar in the 400s. But that exemplar in the 400s uh, said this also appears and had Mark 16, 19, 20. So that's what we're dealing with when we come to that particular note. And again, 
by comparing the notes that we see in different manuscripts, manuscript 1, uh, 1582, 1210, that looks like 22, uh, you can see which manuscripts mm -hmm. have the note. They all continue with Mark 1690-20. And even the ones that say Eusebius Primphilus Canon can, don't have it, in those uh, Eusebius' canons, the, or sections, um, the, those numbers appear on the side of the text anyway, even though the scribe has said that in the original form of Eusebius' canons, those numbers didn't appear. But we see them in the manuscripts. They, they've been expanded and included. So that's all there is to that. And again, there's a relatively small group of manuscripts. We're talking about 15. Uh, you could even double it, but it would still be a, a relatively small group of manuscripts. Okay, we can keep going. Here we have uh, Luxury 846. This is uh, interesting. First, because it's an early Luxury, but also because we can see very plainly that it has Mark 16, 9 through 20. And these are just a few pages of this manuscript. Now, microfilm was taken of this manuscript back in the 50s, and at the Library of Congress in America. Uh, you can go to their website and find this manuscript and find these pages. And it contains Mark 16, 19, 20. In its entirety. As a lection that was being used by the church in the 800s. Again, it includes Mark 16, 19, 20. It's an early lectionary and it shows that Mark 16, 19, 20 was traditionally used in the church service. And that is no exception. That is normal. Uh, Dale Bach uh, has recently had to, uh, was re recently he, he basically retracted his claim that Mark 16, 19, 20 is not in the early lectionaries. That claim was incorrect in the early Byzantine lectionaries. We see it in the earliest Byzantine lectionaries. It's right there. And plus the writings of the church show that it's been there for a time, even before the lectionary was formally developed. So when you look at the Byzantine lectionary, Mark 16, 19, 20 is there as plain as day in what are called the Heothena series. It's a series of 11 readings that were about the resurrection of Christ. And it's, it's right there. It was also read on Ascension Day. And depending on the locale, it, it was there at Easter time too. So that's lectionary 846. You see actually that, um, <laughs> yeah, you see for instance that in the famous codexes, for instance, like Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, for instance, and all the ones that don't include the last, uh, the last verses, that all the scholars, so to say, are jumping right on it and say, look, oh, that, that was the Univocal consensus around, but that's not the case. So, <laughs> for so far for the scholarship, like a human can make mistakes. That's not the well, issue. Well, Everyone can make mistakes. Vaticanus, 
Yes, Vaticanus, Thanaticus, and manuscript 304. That's it as far as manuscripts in Greek that don't include Mark 16 and 20. Uh, William Lane listed a couple of others that don't have it because the manuscript itself has been damaged because some, some thief or simply through incidental damage, uh, the manuscript was dam damaged, but you can tell by considering the count of pa the pages and doing a codicological study of the manuscript, you can tell that initially when the manuscript was made, these verses, and I think, uh, I think uh, 2386, I think, is the other one that he lists, which mm -hmm. are simply cases of manuscripts being, ha having pages damaged instantly or intentionally. In one case, uh, Mark 16, is missing, but that's because somebody or other was stealing the picture of the icon of Luke that was on the opposite side of the page. And so mm. in those cases, that, that, that's all there is to that. When that mention mm. was made, included verses 9 to 20. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, all the way throughout the session, I'm just like with a big smile on my face listening. So could please continue. <laughs> Uh, here we have a, a picture from manuscript 1582 and also from manuscript 72 that has a particularly important note. Uh, this note is in Greek and by here by Mark 16, and while well, you see the text of the manuscripts having Mark 1619 to, to the left there, Mark 1619 is in the text and in the side, in the margin, is this note that says, Irenaeus, who was near the time of the apostles in his work against heresies in book three, cites this remark. Likewise, mm -hmm. in manuscript 72, the similar note, but almost identical, also says, also towards the conclusion of his gospel, Mark says, and of course, this is in the margin right beside Mark 16, 19. Says, so then, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Uh, that's Irenaeus speaking about manuscripts that he had in the year 180. Now, we don't have manuscripts as early as Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon, France, or what is Lyon, France today? I think back then it was Lugdunum. But uh, Irenaeus is using manuscripts far older, significantly older than any copies of Mark that we have today. And he says, Mark says that, well, you have, well, you have verse 19 right there, he cites it. And obviously, since he cites verse 19, he is implying, that implies that he has the rest of verses 9 to 20 as well. So there is the text from the quotation from Irenaeus's book three of Against Heresies, most of which we only have in Latin. But in this particular case, because we have this little note, uh, we see what Irenaeus said in Greek. So that's the note from Irenaeus. He's not the only second century witness to verses 9 through 20, but we'll see some more later. It's often said that Clement, Clement of Alexandria did not, does not 
does not utilize verses 9 through 20 of Mark. Usually that's presented as if it's some kind of a really important statement. But when you look at how little of Mark Clement used, it's it's not it's not <laughs> surprising at all. What was his on, name on again? The next slide. There, uh, the next slide. Uh, Duna. Duna. Uh, based on the Greek word dunamite. Yes, based on the Greek word dunamite, but since it's a cat, I <laughs> figured there won't be any mice around. So, yeah. Well, when you consider how little a mark Clement used, you can see that he used quite a bit in chapter 10 when he was writing about who is the rich man who shall be saved. But uh, outside of that, there are very few references. When you look at chapter one and chapter two and chapter three and chapter four and chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven, I haven't seen any uses of Mark by Clement. Uh, Carl Cossart uh, made a special study and I don't think he saw significantly more than I saw. Um, there's a quotation of Mark in verse in, in chapter 9 and there's an allusion to Mark 9.29 but um, also in composition not preserved in Greek he appears to use a few verses from chapter 13 and 14 but overall Clement uses about 1.3% of Mark chapters 1 through 9 and Mark chapters 11 through 16 it's not surprising that he wouldn't use verses 9 through 20 because that's just one of oodles of 12 verse segments in Mark that Clement does not use. Outside of chapter 10, he uses very little of Mark. It's all concentrated around chapter 10. So nobody should think it's surprising that he doesn't use verses 9 to 20 when you could pick pretty much any chapter besides chapter 10 and find the 12 verse segment that he does not use. And this should be emphasized because although Hort back in 1881 said that this should be considered just a casual silence by Clement's part, uh, Bruce Metzger's comment, which was that uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen uh, show no knowledge of Mark 16, 19-20. Uh, that was what Metzger claimed. But when you look into how little of Mark Clement used, uh, it's not surprising at all. Again, you could say that about a 12-verse segment in anywhere in verses, excuse me, anywhere in chapters 1 through 7, or anywhere in chapters 11 through 16, you could find a 12-verse segment. And if you wanted to say that, well, that means that it must not have been an inclement copy, uh, usually that would be absurd. Uh, you simply can't use arguments from silence validly uh, to that extent. And so that's that's that. That's we that. Proceed to the next slide. Yeah. And here are some things that influential writers are saying. Now, Norman Geisler, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, he is on record saying that Mark 16, 20 
are lacking in many of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, um, which is simply not true. It's lacking in two of them, uh, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. Likewise, Larry, Larry Richards has spread the same claim. He says, in many ancient Greek manuscripts, Mark's Gospel ends at 16.8, uh, not manuscripts that we have today, uh, because about 1,643 manuscripts in Greek include Mark 16.9-20. Only three of them, two of which we've seen, uh, do not have Mark 16.9-20. Wolford Harrington, who wrote a commentary, claimed that Mark 16, 19, 20 is omitted in very many Greek manuscripts of the gospel, which, again, is simply untrue. Uh, William Barclay, the author of a very influential commentary series, wrote that verses 19, 20 are not in any of the great early manuscripts. It is only later and inferior manuscripts which, which contain them. I assume that for that statement to be true, he must think that all except for two manuscripts are later and inferior. We've seen Codex D, we've seen Codex C, we've seen Codex W, which include them, which represent different locales. Irenaeus also is, represents three different locales because he grew up in Asia Minor, and then he settled in France, but also Irenaeus visited Rome. And Irenaeus is a great source to see that he was aware of three different places the text being used. And Irenaeus quotes Mark 16, 19. Also, David Ewart says all major manuscripts in this gospel at 168. Uh, I don't know who David Ewart is, but uh, he must think that there are only two major Greek manuscripts uh, because Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are the only two that end the gospel of Mark at chapter 16, verse 8, except for 3 or 4, which is from the Middle Ages. And speaking of Middle Ages, Bart Ehrman has stated that in the middle, in the early Middle Ages, scribes added Mark 16, 19, 20. Sometime I would like to ask Dr. Ehrman um, which one of those in the early Middle Ages scribes made the manuscript that Irenaeus was using in the 100s and the copies that the other early patrician writers were using in the years 100s, 200s, 300s, and 400s. Speaking of which, I think we can proceed to the next scribe. But obviously, there are is a whole bunch of misinformation being spread about Mark 16, 19, 20. In the message, uh, Hyper paraphrase it states that Mark 16:20 is contained only in later manuscripts. A completely absurd statement, but it continues to be printed, printed in copies of the Bible, which would be hilarious if it weren't so sad. Also, in the Jerusalem Bible, it states many manuscripts of verses 9 to 20, 
which is simply not true as long as we're talking about Greek copies. And in the English Standard Version in 2010, now this is not an old version. I think the ESV initially came out in 2001. But it emphasize the wording they're using, which seems to be, and again, I can't read the mind of the person that wrote the annotation, but it seems to be worded so as to guide the reader to a particular conclusion. It's somewhat misleading. They say some manuscripts in the book with 68. Now by some, they mean, as far as Greek manuscripts are concerned, they mean three. Others include verses 9 through 20, immediately after verse 8. Uh, by others, uh, if we were to be a little, little bit more precise, we'd say at least 1,643. When they say a few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14, one Latin manuscript adds after verse 8, the following, uh, before we get too far, uh, a few manuscripts, that, that part of the footnote is not true. Uh, hopefully, unfortunately, uh, I was able to contact some of the people associated with the ESV. I believe they have fixed this footnote since then. But initially, they were saying that a few manuscripts, that few should be one. That is Codex W. That's the only manuscript. And then the one Latin manuscript adds up to verse 8, the following, but they reported briefly to Peter. Excuse me. But they reported brief, briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. What you see here in the footnote is what's known as the shorter ending. Now, there is an ending shorter than the short, shorter ending which is just to stop at verse 8 with nothing in the Codex Sinaiticus. This has traditionally been called the shorter ending, and so that's what its name shall be. And when they say other manuscripts, they mean six, uh, well, basically five in the text, but one has it in the margin, and so we'll count it. For a total of six, other manuscripts include this wording uh, one way or another after verse 8, and then continue with verses 9 through 20. So now we're talking about manuscripts that have this reading here that you see that I just read. Uh, they have that, and they also have verses 9 through 20, or at least as much as verses 9 through 20, to show that when the manuscript was in pristine, pristine condition, that verses 9 through 20 were there. So there you can see, now, now the note says at least one, but I don't know why they keep on saying at least one manuscript inserts, except to say it more vaguely than they could, because there is, in fact, only one manuscript that has the additional material after verse 14. Um, you can see how a person could get a somewhat inaccurate impression when by saying things, things like some and others and at least one 
Whereas they could say, if they wanted to, they could say three manuscripts in the book of 1,643. It's very ambiguous. Has additional material after verse 14. I don't know why they seemed determined to be so vague, but they are. We can continue with the next slide. Let's now consider what manuscripts were in the hands of people in the early church. When we look at a writing called Epistula Apostolorum. Now, you'll have to bear with me with my pronunciation. You're doing it very, very splendid. In Epistula Apostolorum. Thank you. Epistula Apostolorum is an interesting text because in its earliest form, it basically says, it, it pictures Jesus saying that he's going to come back by the year 150. What we know as the year 150 on our calendar. In the secondary form, in Ethiopic, that's changed to 180, because I, the implication is that well, the year 150 has come and gone, and they don't want to picture Jesus saying anything inaccurate, and so they modify the, the text. But that practically guarantees that here we have a text that was written initially before the year 150. The, the narrative form of Epistula Apostolorum, if you consider what, what the late Robert Stein wrote about it, it appears to use Mark 16 and 20 as the basis for its narrative form. Also, Justin Martyr wrote his first apology around the year 160, and he appears to use the verbiage of verse 20 very, very close. Justin hardly ever uh, would would make a direct quotation where he would say, I'm now going to quote you something from the Gospel of Matthew, or I'm now going to quote from the Gospel of Mark, or I'm now quoting from the Gospel of Luke, I'm now quoting from the Gospel of John. Uh, just might do that occasionally, but not very often. Getting a direct quotation like that from Justin is rare, because Justin probably was using a harmony of the Gospels, which was then expanded upon by his student Tatian. And Tatian, mm. around the year 170 or 170s, sometime in the 170s, uh, combined the text of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John into one continuous narrative, uh, which would be, he, he would consider it uh, simpler than just having to go to each Gospel separately, because so often they say the same thing. And Tatian combined Matthew and Mark and Luke and John into one continuous, more or less non-repeating narrative called the Diatessaron. The Diatessaron was extremely popular in the early church, but Tatian had a, had a few quirks in his theology. Uh, he was a vegetarian. He thought that the coming of Christ was very close, and so he he discouraged marriage, and eventually, for these reasons and maybe a few others, he was considered not orthodox. And so all copies of the Diatessaron, except maybe one little scrap, that basically all copies of the Diatessaron 
have disappeared. A few people just stopped making copies of them. But uh, echoes of the Diatessaron remain. And in a copy of the, of the Arabic text of the Diatessaron, which it says in notes in the manuscript was copied from a Syriac copy of the Diatessaron, there you have the not, not so much the exact content, but the distribution of the text. So you have pieces of Matthew in the same order in which they were distributed along with Mark and Luke and John. Meanwhile, in the Western copy, in Codex Fodensis, Codex Fodensis was a copy made about the year 546. And in 546, uh, a bishop named Victor uh, described his scenario. He said, I have this example. I have this old manuscript. I think it may be the text of Tatian Diatessaron, but far be it from me to, to uh, distribute the text of, of somebody who's less than orthodox. But thinking that his material was valuable, uh, Victor proceeded to use the text of his copy of the, the Vulgate, and using that text of the Vulgate, representing the arrangement of the text in his exemplar, which he thought was Tatian's Diatessaron. And so in Codex Faldensis in Latin, we have the text of the Vulgate, but it's arranged and broken up in pieces according to the example that, that Victor was using. So when we look at the arrangement of Mark 16, 19, 20 in Codex Faldensis, and we compare that to the copy in the Arabic text and compare the two, uh, they line up rather well, not in every detail, but in enough details to be confident that Tatian's text used Mark 16, 19, 20 that was around the year 172. That's earlier than any copy that we have in any language. Also, Patient's Diatestron was commented on in about the year 363 by, e by Ephraim Cyrus. Ephraim Cyrus's commentary was preserved in a copy which has been assigned to about the 500s. And so in Ephraim's text, he uses material, material from Mark 16 to 20. And so again, we can be confident by that source, as well as other diatessaronic witnesses that use the diatessaron that use Mark 16 and 20. Besides the official apostolorum and Justin Martyr and Tatian, we have the explicit quotation of Mark 16:19 by Irenaeus that we saw earlier. Also in the writings of Tertullian, I think there's enough evidence in the writings of Tertullian, not as clear as in Irenaeus because Irenaeus is, is spectacularly clear. But in Tertullian's writings, I think there's enough we can make a, a plausible case that Tertullian's manuscripts of Mark included verses 9 to 20. Likewise, in the case of Hippolytus, um, in his writings, uh, some of which have been expanded, but uh, in one case we have Hippolytus uh, using what seems a clear reference to Mark 16, 17, 
where, where Mark writes about um, they shall drink poison or uh, poisonous things and it shall by no means hurt them. Uh, Hippolytus seems to use that particular word, that the same word that we see in Mark 16 17, uh, for the, the same purpose. Also in the writing, the, the, the Discalia Apostolorum, also in the statement that um, Vincentius, or simply Vincent, had made at the, around 257 at a particular council, Vincentius appears to use uh, the wording of Mark uh, in verses, between verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16. Also in the De Baptismate, also the Old Latin Capitulum. Now this is really several witnesses that I've just put under one heading. The Capitula or the Capitulum were uh, chapter summaries that were in copies of the copies in Latin. Uh, Latin like they like to kind of have their chapter summaries and the book descriptions along with the text of the book. And in the Old Latin Capitulum which are in the CY form, and that goes back to the 200s. Uh, the, in the Old Latin Capitulum, Mark 16, 19, 20 is described there, uh, plain as day. That's in the form of the book summaries that existed in the 200s. The CY form is called CY because CY stands for the time of Cyprian, who was a bishop in the first half of the 200s. Also, Hierocles, Hierocles is actually one of the bad guys. He was not a Christian. He was a pagan writer. His, uh, his mentor was Porphyry. And Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, in his day, which is later on, says that Hierocles would uh, take Porphyry's material and simply reuse it. He would recycle what his, what his mentor had written. Hierocles... Uh, wrote a book against Christianity, but in the course of writing that book, he happens to mention that he makes a little jibe at the Christians, and he says, oh, you Christians, here's the way you should decide who gets to be bishop or who gets to be deacon. Uh, just take that passage that says uh, about drinking poison. Well, the, the one who, the, the one among you who who refrains from drinking the most poison, uh, the, the one of the most poison, uh, the one who wins the poisoning contest, he should be your bishop. And if he refuses to drink the poison, well, there you see how little faith he has. He shouldn't be a bishop. So Hierocles uses that as a as kind of a little, little, little jab or a jive in one of his writings. Also in the early 300s, you have uh, a Syriac writer, Aphrat, uh, also known as Aphrates, the sage, and in his demonstration uh, near the beginning, he uses Mark 16:19-20. Now, Aphrodite may be using the diatessaron, but Aphrodite also speaks about the genealogy of Christ, which uh, most scholars of the diatessaron would would say that it did not include the genealogies. But uh, Aphrodite knows about the genealogies. Uh, there's some some question, a doubt could be raised about whether Aphrodite is the writer of that particular writing, but in any event, he knows the ending of Mark. He knows verses 19 to 20 because he, he quotes from verse 17. 
Also, the Axe of Pilot is another writing from the 300s. Uh, it was later expanded into the Gospel of Nicodemus. So, to an extent, those are the same writing, although there's an early form and a later form. But in the earlier form, uh, Mark 16, material, material from Mark 16 and 20 is there. Uh, in the later form, it's still there, but even, even more of it is there. You also have the writings of Eusebius of Caesarea, and in one of his Eusebius of Caesarea's writings, he writes to a colleague named Marinus, and Marinus, in his writing, is asking Eusebius, how do you harmonize Matthew 28.2 with Mark 16.9? So obviously, in the text that Marinus is using, Mark 16.9 is there, which implies that the rest of Mark 16.9 through 20 is also there. Uh, then you have Eusebius's response, which often, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of commentators seem to have only seen Eusebius's response in the little snippets that Bruce Metzger provides in his textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. Uh, Metzger only gives a little bit of here and there. He doesn't really give nearly everything that Eusebius has to say. Eusebius, in his response to, to Marinus, says there are two ways to go about resolving this difficulty. One way is to say, in other words, he's framing it as something that a person could say. One way is to say that Mark 16, 19, 20 we need not be concerned with because it is not in uh, so many copies of the Gospel of Mark. You could say that it's not in all of the copies, or you could say it's not in some of the copies. You could say in the accurate copies, especially if it implies a contradiction with what another, with what another evangelist says. So after presenting that point of view, Eusebius then proceeds to say, and this is the part that many commentators seem not to have ever encountered, and it's the part that, that Metzger leaves out. Fortunately, Roger Pierce has provided a basically exhaustive books of, well, a book called Eusebius of Caesarea, Gospel Problems and Solutions, in which he presents the Greek text of this composition as much of it as he could reconstruct. And in his book, I think I have a copy of right over here, if you give me just a moment. No problem. Yes, here it is. You see Mrs. Caesarea, Gospel Problems and Solutions. You can mm -hmm. see the text and the translation in English of the text uh, that Metzger is talking about. So if you'd like to get another look at it, if you're not satisfied just getting the snippets of it that you get from Metzger, you can get the full text in this book, which can also be downloaded, by the way, for free. Again, for free. Um, from online. And in that text, you can see that Eusebius proceeds to say, but another person who does not feel free to just disregard any of the 
what the evangelists have written in their copies would say, what you need to do is just add the pause at Mark 16, 8. So that, Jesus, so that Mark is saying, not, not referring to the timing of Jesus' appearance, but he's referring to the, the timing of his appearance to Mary Magdalene. After you say the initial, the initial phrase there in Mark, Mark 16, 9, uh, you just add a pause. And it will be perfectly clear that there's no contradiction involved. So simply add, uh, this is how you would say it. You would say, you would say Mark 69, the beginning of it, and then add a pause and then say the rest of it. So thus you would resolve the problem. Uh, that seems to be what Eusebius is actually recommending uh, Marinus to do at the time that he's writing Ad Marinum. And also later on in, in Ad Marinum, Later on, when he's dealing with a different question, Eusebius brings up Mark 69 again, as what Mark says in some copies. And then again, in the same composition, later on, he brings up Mark 69, but doesn't even worry about whether or not it's in some copies. He simply says, Mark says, uh, Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene in Mark 69. Mark, Mark says, now Luke also says that, but Eusebius specifies where Mark says it. And so it's not as clear cut the situation of Eusebius that as, as Metzger's, uh, it's not as clear as what you would get. Well, not, not nearly as clear um, because later on Eusebius, He seems to have changed his mind because at some point he made his, his cross-reference system for the Gospels, the Eusebian Canons. And in the earliest form of the Eusebian Canons, he doesn't include any, any cross-references for Mark 16, 19-20. But at least when he's writing to Marinus, he's able to recommend the inclusion of Mark 16, 9 and he even describes how to pronounce the verse so that any listeners are not confused. And then you have the Philologion, which, uh, as we saw from the writings of Jerome in around 417, when he mentions it, he states that it kind of came before Mark 16, 14. Uh, obviously, if you don't have verses 9 through 20, you won't have verse 14 either. So Jerome is taking for granted that his reader, that his re the readers of the work that he's writing, are going to have Mark 16:9-20 in their own manuscripts. And he brings up the Prologion. Um, he brings it up as something that he says whether whether you accept the testimony or not, because after all, it, it is an, an interpolation that's not not in all copies. Uh, as far as we're concerned, it's only in Codex, Codex W. But Metzger, in his textual commentary, he states that, uh, that the Philologion, he thinks this was a, uh, he says, it's probably the work of a second or third century scribe 
who wished to soften the severe condemnation of the eleven in 1614. Well, when it comes to, to guesswork, um, supposing that we accept Metzger's guess that it is indeed a interpolation that comes from the second or third century scribe, uh, that is yet another uh, witness for Mark 16, 19-20 that we would have in addition to all the others. But there's more. Fortunatianus is a writer in Latin, and uh, his writings came to light relatively recently. We, we thought Fortunatianus' commentary was lost. That uh, the, his writings, though, have been uh, rediscovered. Uh, Dr. Lucas, who's, and uh, sorry, Doctor, I forget your name, but uh, whoever it was, Lucas is his name, but Dr. Lucas something has uh, found the writings of Fortunatianus, and in his writings, he mentions that it is appropriate for Mark to take the icon of the eagle. Now, what he's talking about is the traditional emblems that each gospel writer has had. Traditionally, Matthew, whose genealogy starts with, well, the book, chapter one is all about the genealogies of Christ. And so Matthew is the man or the angel. And then Mark would be the lion. Uh, because it starts with John the Baptist roaring in the wilderness. Then Luke starts out with scenes in the, the ox is a sacrificial animal. Now, when you look at what the early church fathers say about them, they don't always line up with that configuration I, I just described. Uh, that usually usually Mark gets the lion, but occasionally it changes. And Fortunatianus' commentary, he says Mark gets the eagle because Mark mentions the ascension, excuse me, because Mark mentions the ascension of Christ. Well, there's nowhere else that Mark mentions the ascension of Christ except in Mark 16, 19. So it, it, the implication is that Fortunatianus' copy of Mark included verses 9-20. Likewise with Ambrose of Milan, the prominent bishop of Milan. Milan was no small city, and it was not a minor place. It was a major, a major, major city, uh, still, still is. Ambrose of Milan quotes from Mark 16, 9-20, repeatedly. Uh, and, and also there is Palladius of Retieria to also consider. I think Retieria is misspelled in the slide, that's no big deal. Palladius was actually a, one, of the, one of the non-Orthodox bishops in the 300s. In the Council, uh, the council of Aquilia, he was removed from office. Palladius uh, protested his removal from office uh, in a particularly old manuscript, there is in the margin comments from Palladius. Uh, the manuscript was made probably in the early 400s. Palladius 
makes an explicit quotation of Mark 16, 19. Uh, the Claremontanus catalog uh, implies that in the copies that were used to compile its, its list of which books for how long, uh, it implies that Mark 16, 19, 20 was in the, the text of Mark. That brings us to Ephraim, Cy Ephraim Cyrus, who again, using the Diatessaron, uh, has material from Mark 16, 19-20. There's also a writing called Apostolic Constitutions from about the year 380. Now, Apostolic Constitutions is basically a forgery, but it's a very old forgery. It's from the year 380. And it also uses Mark 16, 19-20. The interesting thing about Apostolic Constitutions is that it may be recycling material that goes back to Hippolytus in the 200s. Then comes Didymus. Uh, Didymus the Blind, and he was a scholar in Egypt, and uh, his work called the Trinitate might or might not be by, by Didymus, because Didymus says some things in his writing in the Trinitate which may or may not be reconcilable with what he says in some of his other writings. It might be somebody else entirely, or it might be Dinos, and what we simply see is somebody actually changed his mind. Of course, we know that true theologians never change their minds about anything. Well, that's Dinos in De Trinitate. He uses material from Mark 16, 19, 20. If it's not Dinos, then it's somebody else uh, writing probably not much removed from his time or place. Epiphanius was a heresy hunter on the island of Cyprus, Cyprus uh, in the city of Salamis. Epiphanius, uh, he also uh, uses material from Mark 16, 9-20. Well, sometimes see him represented as half for and half against but that half against is really only a comment that Epiphanius made about the Eusebian canons. So it's not Epiphanius independently, it's Epiphanius just telling people what the Eusebian canons were at the time before they were expanded later. Also, Augustine's writings, uh, Augustine uses, when he's writing about the, the four gospels, he repeatedly uses Mark 16, 19-20. There's no question that Augustine's Latin text there in North Africa included Mark 16, 19-20. His lectionary cycle that he was using probably had Mark 16, 19-20 as well. But on one occasion, Augustine is making a point in which he appeals to his Greek manuscripts. Now, Augustine... Uh, usually does, does not lean on his Greek manuscripts, but in this case he does. And he quotes from Mark 16, verse 12, and does not express any doubt about the inclusion of Mark 16, 12, which implies, again, that, in, that his copies had verses 9-20. There are also what's called the Lucian Acts, and this is, these are apocryphal stories, um, some very early, some very late, and 
because they've been blended together, it's difficult to tell uh, what's the earliest part. But in the Lucian Acts of Mark 16, 19, 20, material from there is used as well. Uh, Jerome, uh, probably the best scholar of his day, uh, both in the Vulgate, which he stated that he had made on the basis of early Greek manuscripts. Now, this is manuscripts that would be considered early when he made it, which would be in 383, Jerome is making the Vulgate. He includes Mark 16, 19, 20 in the Vulgate. Jerome was born around the year 340, so you would consider, if Jerome considered a copy to be old, he probably thought it was older than he was. So his Greek copies included it, that's why it's in the volume. And then he again refers to Mark 16, 19-20 in his writing against the Pelagians, which he wrote around the year 417, which I've already described, uh, using Mark 1614 as a place to locate the Phrygian. Chromatius, who was sometimes friend, sometimes foe to Jerome, but uh, Chromatius also uses Mark 1619. Macarius Magnus is another writer. He's writing around the year 410, in the city of Magnesia in Asia Minor, and he's res responding to Hierocles. Now, he doesn't know that he's responding to Hierocles. He's gotten a copy of Hierocles' book, but he doesn't know who wrote it. It, it probably is simply missing its cover. But as Macarius Magnes is writing his response to Hierocles, because uh, Hierocles had a kind of a, kind of a jibe using Mark 16, 17, but Macarius Magnes also uses that pa the passage and says, this is the way we use it. And he finds a more spiritualized uh, interpretation of the verse. He clearly is using the verse. Uh, John Chrysostom, uh, uh, time out for medicine. John Chrysostom does, does not explicitly quote from Mark 16, 19, 20. However, he says some things which cumulatively could make a plausible case that it was in his manuscripts. The Doctrine of Die is an early text, and again, it's a, it's a, composite, a composite text. There's parts of it that you could say were, you could reason that this part is earlier than this part. But in the source materials of Doctrine of Adai, in the form that it exists today, we have references which indicate that Mark 16, was in that as well. Also, in the statement made by Pelagius, um, there's a, also a use of material from Mark 16, Not the whole passage, but one of the unique passages within that, those verses. Likewise, from Philostorius. Uh, he's not a well-known writer, but he's another writer who is quite early and has material from Mark 16, 19, 20. Esnik of Gold is a name that you probably recognize as being one of the early Armenian translators. Uh, Esnik was instrumental 
in the trans early translation, probably not the very earliest translation, but an early translation of the Gospels into Armenian in the 430s under the tutelage of Mesrop. Esnach of Gold in his writing De, De Deo, and that's not the only term by which this particular composition is known, but I know it as De Deo. Within De Deo, Esnach of Gold refers to the contents of Mark 16, 17 through 18. Maybe he's using the Didesteron, but in any event, there is yet another usage of Mark 16 and 20 in the early church writer. Cross from Aquitaine is another writer. Again, this is not this is just one locale being represented. These are multiple locales. So you can see how far the text has spread. Cross from Aquitaine, again, used Mark 16, 19 20. Not, again, not the entire passage, but he quoted enough of it. You could tell that in his copy of Mark that he was using, it was there. Also, there's a little known writer named Marius Mercator who refers to material from Mark 16, 1920. And Marcus Aramida, who was stationed in what is what is now Israel, uh, Marcus Aramida in that locale, uses material from Mark 16, 1920. Also, the the man who has become known to us as a as non-Orthodox, but he's being quoted by Cyril of Alexandria. So this is Cyril of Alexandria referring to something that Nestorius wrote in his writings. Nestorius, being quoted by Cyril of Alexandria, quotes from Mark 16, 19-20. Also, Leo the Great, in one of his writings, he uses material from Mark 16, 19-20. And you can quote a lot more Latin writers but they'd all be echoing in the Vulgate, so that will just be a pile of Vulgate quotations. And, but uh, clearly, Leo the Great accepted the, the use of Mark 16, 19-20 in the text that he was using. Meanwhile, in Ireland, which is yet another locale, St. Patrick, in his writings, of which we do not have very many, but in his writings and his letters, he quotes Mark 16, verse 16. So in Patrick's Latin text, all the way over in Ireland, uh, Mark 16, 19, was there. And then we have Peter Crucilogus, who is probably writing for a congregation in Ravenna, Italy. In his writings, he comments about Mark 16, 19, as well, does not express any doubt about it. Likewise, Ambrose does not express any doubt about it. Likewise, Augustine does not express any doubt about it. Just Irenaeus did not express any doubt about it. A little while later, in what's called the Catina Markham, now uh, the Catina Markham is basically a co collection of comments from early church writers about the text. Here and there, we have a uh, well, well, more than here and there, it's really a significant number of manuscripts that have, on one hand, it's a copy of Mark, but it also is a copy of what the early church writers said about Mark. And so it's a running commentary of sorts. It's not, it's not a, an exhaustive commentary, 
but it would include the comments that the early church writers made about it. And in the Catina Markham, there was a comment by Victor of Antioch. And Victor says that although Eusebius might say, well, he doesn't actually explicitly refer to Eusebius, but uh, that he seems to be alluding to it with the expectation that people will understand that he's talking about Eusebius' comments. Victor says, although there are some copies of Mark that don't have verse 9 to 20, and there are some, some that do, I find in my cherished Palestinian exemplar of Mark, it has verses 9 to 20. Therefore, I will, will include these verses seeing as how they've come from my cherished exemplar from Palestine. And so that's Victor of Antioch. Sephiroth is another writer who in his homily 77 uh, on Mark, he, he excuse me, in homily 77, uh, he uses Mark 16, 9 20. Again, not the whole passage, but enough to show that it's there in the manuscript that he's familiar, familiar with. You can go on, and this is a little later, to Leontius of Jerusalem also uses it. Eugippus, a Latin writer, also uses it. We also see it in the text of Codex Fulgentius, also in a little-known writing called the Martyrium Arithe, uh, which uh, concerns uh, people who were murdered in uh, Arabia. Arabia. Uh, it's in there. Also in a writing which comes to us from Egypt, the enthronement of the Archangel Michael. Um, this is, again, uh, what we're getting a bit on in this list, but in this writing, this is still older than eight, at least 80% of our copies that we that we use. In the enthronement of Archangel Michael, uh, it's plainly used. Likewise, in the life of Samson Abdul in the 600s, uh, the writer of this book, writing about an earlier saint of Britain, he says that Saint Samson of Duel, some enemies were attempting to poison him, but Samson of Duel uh, approached the cup, and knowing the words of promise that they shall drink deadly things and it shall not harm them, armed with that faith, he made the sign of the cross over the chalice and drank it down, and the demons have a headache afterwards. Then we have the revelation of the Magi. Uh, again, I think this is extant in only one copy of the Vatican Library, but uh, it has been st studied, and it too uses material from Mark 16, 9-20. Uh, that should be a pretty full list when you look at the patristic evidence and think every one of these individuals who are mentioned had a copy of Mark, at least one copy, in some cases, probably more. But at least one copy. This is all representative above this line. As long as you're above this, this, this line, you're in the time of the Roman Empire. You're before 486. So there was a copy of Mark with verses 19-20 in the hands of every single one of these writers. This information just discombobulated me when I first saw it. Like the, the, the scary thing is, is that when there's a consensus, 
people without looking into it, they automatically like um, acquiesce towards it. They, they, accept, they accept what they heard, but when you hear all this, this entire list of, of people who it's, referenced it's it. Important to, it's yeah. important to realize, when you read the note in, say, the NIV or the NLP. <laughs> Which I have. <laughs> or, yes, I have some copies here, too. Or the New American, New American Standard. Um, they could make footnotes that mention all of these. Instead, they make footnotes that mention none of these. There is not a single footnote in the NIV or in the New American Standard or in the NL, NLT that has taken the time to mention, oh, yes, by the way, Irenaeus in the 100s. His copy of Mark included Mark 16.91, and that is significant. Yeah, uh, You can include all of these in the footnotes. Instead, in the NIV and the other versions, major versions in English, they include none of them. But every single one of these is at least one copy of Mark with verses 9 through 20. And we can continue. We can continue. Next slide. This was amazing. Oh, I think I think actually that was the last slide about yeah. about Mark 16 and 20. And if, yeah. if we would go on, we transition into talking about John 753 through 811. But yeah, so in go every ahead. gallery, in every collection that you go to, in whether you it's the British Museum, or whether it's the Vatican, or whether it's the Pure Collection, or whether it's Duke University's collection, uh, when you look at copies of complete copies of the Gospel of Mark, you will see verses nine to twenty. There's this one exception that's manuscript 304 which is technically more about the comments on mark than the text but because it ends the text at verse 8 uh, that's besides Vaticanus and Sinaiticus that is just one more copy that you could mm -hmm. say does not have much 1690 20 mm -hmm. but uh, but I, I, I'm at my blog uh, the the text of the gospels .com, uh, If you search for manuscript three or four, you can see how little research has been done. Right? Yeah. You can see that the text does in at, at verse eight, and yet its commentary material seems to be connected to the commentary of Theophilus. Now Theophilus wrote before the production of manuscript three or four. And in Theophilus' complete commentary, he comments on Mark 16, 19, 20. So manuscript 304 is a bit of a mystery. Its text is mainly Byzantine. And of course, there were oodles of earlier Byzantine, Byzantine copies that include Mark 16, 19, 20. It's a bit of a mystery why 304 does not. Mm. But uh, but all the other manuscripts, like I said, 
if I wanted to, I could just, just go on a tour of seeing one image of Mach 69 pointing after the other, although that would probably be pressing on some of your viewers' time. But you could, if you wanted to, just go through the picture, just go through all your copies of Mark, please show them, and one after the other, after the other, after the other, numbering to 1,000, at least 1,643, include mm -hmm. Mark 169020. Not only the continuous text manuscripts, but you can look in one lectionary after another. And now, I've only shared the patrician writers that go up to the point that I went, which was around the 600s. But those that say, oh, it's hardly ever mentioned, well, that's ridiculously false. I've just showed you the list. That's, that's almost deceptive. Like, that's the thing that really, I have a real hard time figuring out if they're doing this on purpose or they're just very ignorant about it. And they are humans, they're making mistakes, but they are scholars. Like millions of millions of people I depend. Think what has happened is there has been a, a almost monopoly of this. And people have really gone and dug any deeper than, than Metzger dug when he wrote this. Mm. And when you look, there's oodles and oodles and oodles of evidence that Metzger never mentions. For instance, Claudius, a writer from who lived in the late 300s, the manuscript that preserves his comments is from the 400s. Claudius is never mentioned, although I believe the data has been available ever since the, the turn of the 1900s. Uh, yeah. That's just one of many petition references that the NIV footnote writers and the NLT's footnote writers and the NASB's footnote writers simply are not paying any attention to. Yeah. Certainly, the messages footnote writers yeah. are ignoring that material because yeah. it plainly contradicts what their footnotes say. Yeah. If they were to tell the readers, uh, the full extent of the Greek evidence, you would basically have them saying that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are basically stand, stand, stand alone among all other Greek copies. But because their text is basically inherited from 1881 with Westcon Hort, um, they continue to perpetuate the same material, which really needed to be supplemented almost as soon as Hort wrote it. Uh, Codex Y was discovered very shortly afterwards. Codex W was discovered in 1906. And many other materials yeah. have been made available. You know, this, uh, you know what I'm going to do? All these um, codexes that you just mentioned, all these patristic fathers with the, my own pen, I have a little bit of room over here. I'm going to write down that all these places, it does mention it. So like, yeah, it's almost child play. It, it, I don't know if it's a matter of pride or something. Like I really hope that uh, like Bruce Metzger has passed away. May the Lord give him all the rest that he needs. But for instance, people like Daniel Wallace, for instance, that they will mention, like, uh, I messed up a bit. Like, I don't know. I don't know. This type of information should have already be 
uh, Daniel Walsh, for instance, but I don't know. I don't know. Only the Lord knows. Well, I think I think Daniel Walsh's works can uh, use a good a good uh, going old when it comes to the things that he says about the Gospel of Mark at the end, and also the story of the adulterers. Um, there are mistakes that Daniel Walsh makes, and I won't. There's no need to go into all the mistakes that Daniel Walsh makes. Um, you can see my, my blogs for sometimes I have uh, listed them here and there. Uh, they kind of add up after a while. <laughs> so, I saw it. <laughs> um, I, I do offer some critique in, in another video that I already have placed online of some things that he said, which was simply not true about asterisks and obelai. Uh, things that I, I think he would truly correct if he gets the chance. Uh, and hopefully his writings in which he's already said it, hopefully they don't mislead two people until the rejection comes. But really the rejection should come because I've looked at the manuscripts that he's talking about and they don't have the features that he says they have. It's simply an incorrect claim. He must have not ever actually taken time to look carefully at the manuscript. That's another story. Yeah. Now we can look and proceed to talk about John chapter 7, verse 53 yeah. through 11. And once again, the uh, premier manuscripts of the text forms that are being used as the main text of the NIV mm -hmm. and some other English versions. Um, by emphasizing the, their, their manuscripts in Alexandria, in Egypt, by emphasizing the Egyptian text, um, they tend to overlook the other text. For instance, in the, in the New King James Version, which is based prim primarily on the text of acceptance, which is, again, not entirely, but primarily Byzantine, uh, the Byzantine text has this passage. It's in 1,500 manuscripts. And that's not an estimate. That's a precise number. 1,500 manuscripts of John, excuse me, 1,500 manuscripts of the Gospels have the passage that we know as the story of the woman caught in adultery. John 7.53 9, excuse me, through 8, 11. In some copies, you, all you get is the note that you have, which I, uh, I'll just read to you from, from the, what's called the, the Christian Standard Bible. Now, mm. it might be, I don't know, in, in Armenia, this might be very far from standard, but in its footnote, it has a heading above John 7.53, which says the earliest manuscripts do not include 7.53 through 8.11. Te technically, that's true. The earliest manuscripts are from Egypt. But the thing, the thing to see is, and what many people seem not to be aware of, is that the climate of Egypt is 
almost almost unique. Maybe you could replicate it in the Gobi Desert, but as far as the humidity level, it is much lower, much drier than other locations in, in the early church. For instance, a manuscript made of papyrus that was used in France, or Ireland, or Turkey, or Syria, uh, would not survive. The papyrus eventually would simply naturally rot away. So the papyrus manuscripts that we refer to are almost ex exclusively from Egypt or places very near Egypt. Now, now and then, here and there, you'll get a special, a special, a special case. For instance, a manuscript that was in the city wall of Duryodhapas and was caught there in the wall when it was destroyed and just happened to be there. And therefore it is preserved because of the weird, weird circumstances in which it was, it was left. That's the case of a copy that's, that's a almost, almost unique. But most of our papyri that we used to reconstruct the text of the New Testament come from Egypt. And so you would expect the localized form of the Gospels to be the form that was used there. They're not going to tell you anything about what form was used in Turkey or in Antioch or in Syria. Well, Antioch is in Syria or in the general, the general locale or the form that was used in Armenia. No other form used in Greece or on the island of Islamis or Crete. Egypt is Egypt, and it tells you the, the evidence that we have is pretty good at telling you what was the text used in Egypt. But don't imagine that that means that that same text was used everywhere else. So with that in mind, we can start to consider some evidence that we have. Yeah. Now we know that the Alexandrian text and its oldest form that we have did not contain this passage. In Vaticanus, it's not there. In Sinaiticus, it's not there. In Papyrus 66, it's not there. In Papyrus 75, it's not there. In Codex T, it's not there. In Codex A, another early manuscript, which has Mark 69-20, but again, does not have the passage we turn to now. And also Codex C, um, we don't have the actual pages of Codex A or Codex C, which would have John, the beginning of John chapter eight. But by space considerations about what the what the past what, what the Codex could hold, uh, codicological calculations imply very strongly that Codex A and Codex C did not have John seven fifty three. Through 11. So mm. I put them on the, on the same stack on which I put Vaticanus and, and Sinaiticus. Yeah. With that so, in mind, we can continue. Is it a okay. moment to take a quick break? I'm going to go fill up my glass and then I'll be back. Now we're going to start off with, uh, with the pericope adultery. Okay. Yeah. Hey, hey, if you well, want to I go. Take a break too. My glass is yeah. all as well. I'll uh, see you in a minute. Uh, hiatus, and then we'll jump right back. Yeah, there we I'll see you back again so, in a moment. Uh, intermission, stay tuned. Yes. All right.
I'm not overdoing it. I'm just sitting in a chair. I don't know. It's going well so far. I'll wait as soon as you stop. Thank you. There we are again. All right. Shall we continue? We shall. There we go. I agree. By the grace of God. By the grace of God, amen. Let's continue. And uh, I mean, I want to show, uh, like I said, the footnote that I mentioned, it says in the CSB, other manuscripts include all or some of the, of the passage after John 7, 52, of course, 52 is where it usually is, following and also after 21 25 or after luke 21 38 mm. that is all the information that's in the footnote and again i don't know why well i have an idea but the footnotes are incredibly incredibly vague in family one and family one is Unusual because it usually has the PA at the end of John. And I think Dan Wallace is one who says that it's there, but hardly ever is this note mentioned. The note that comes with it in the chief representatives of Family One. Family One, like I said, is a group of manuscripts which has what, what was called the Caesarean form of the text. And family one it has John 753 to 811, uh, not at John 753, but at the end of the book. But it's important to realize, and this is often neglected to be told when it should be said, this note is there. And the note says, in the gospel according to John, 
this does not appear in the majority of copies. What did it say? That I think more of that, that text is obscure to me, but it does not appear in the most copies, nor is it commented upon by the divine fathers whose interpretations have been preserved, specifically by John Chrysostom, a very, very major writer, and an important patristic, patristic pardon me, writer, uh, and civil Alexander, now is taken up by Theodore of Montsuestia. So the note says, some of our favorite and most honored commentators say nothing about this material. For this reason, and also because it does not appear in most copies, it was not kept in the place where it appears in a few copies at the beginning of the 86th chapter, the 86th preceding section is what it meant, Calling, search and see that a prophet does not arise out of Galilee, which is, of course, the ending of chapter 7, verse 52. So the note says that although it wasn't found in many copies, it was found in a few copies following John 7, 52. And then it was moved from there to the end of the book. So in these copies that have it at the end of the book, which includes, by the way, quite a few Armenian copies, which have, again, a, I think if you look in those Armenian copies, you'll find readings that are very similar and in agreement with the Caesarean text. They'll say, note, there'll, there'll be notes very similar to this note. We see in manuscript one, and we see in manuscript 1582, which of all copies in panic one, those are two of the best ones. I think 1193 is also very good, but you'll have this note. If you don't see this note, you'll just see a note that says, like, like in the CSP, oh, in some copies it's found at the end of John. But when you see this note uh, along with that statement, you can see the note stating very plainly that it was found in a few copies at John 7:53, and somebody moved, then we moved it here to the end of the book. So whenever the family one manuscripts are mentioned and the story of the adulteress is being described, this note should also be mentioned. Unfortunately, that's not the case with the treatment that it's received at the hands of, of Dan Wallace and some many other commentators. But the note shows that although we have moved it to the end of the book, we saw it in a few copies right after John 7.53. And that is where it is usually found. We can proceed now to the next slide. Ambrose of Milan, a Latin writer in the late 300s at a major center, says the acquittal of the woman who in the Gospel of John was brought to Christ accused of adultery is very famous. So Ambrose in the late 300s 
uh, I remember Vaticanus was made around 225. Sinaiticus was probably made at Caesarea around the year 250. Ambrose is just slightly later than, than, than those. But as he's writing, he says that this story is very famous. In paragraphs 11 through 20, he quotes the story in short segments. And here's a sample. He says, the Lord answered her, neither do I condemn thee. And then comes his comments about the passage. Observe how he has phrased his own sentence, so that the Jews might have no ground of allegation against him for the absolution of this one, but by complaining could only draw down the charge upon themselves. For the woman's case is dismissed. She is not declared innocent, and the, uh, and this is because there was no accuser. Because, and as you read John's, the story of the adulteress, that you'll see that when Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, they all express, well, yeah, I, I'm not sinless. And they, they go. So Ambrose proceeds to say, how could they complain that they, because they were not worthy to pronounce judgment and thus carry out the punishment. Thus he said to her who had gone astray, Ambrose is taking for granted the woman who is accused of guilty, really is guilty. He said to her who had gone astray, go and sin no more. He reformed the criminal, he did not absolve the sin. Faults are condemned by a more severe sentence, whenever a man hates his own sin and begins the condemnation of it within himself. When a criminal is put to death, it's the person rather than the punishment, rather than the transgression that is punished. When the transgression is forsaken, the absolution of the person becomes the punishment of the sin. You see, Ambrose is using this didactically to, to, to teach that that's true. If you, want, if, you, if you want to see sin change, you really have to change the person on the inside and that will reform the person on the outside. That is why he concludes, what then is the meaning of go and sin no more? It is this, since Christ has redeemed you, allow yourself to be corrected by grace. Punishment will only afflict you, not reform you. Mm -hmm. So Ambrose uses this passage as he's encouraging his listeners to live righteous lives. And that's what Ambrose says about it without expressing any doubt about it in Epistle 26 in his writings. So that's Ambrose's testimony he clearly has it in his Latin text. He clearly uses it as he's teaching. Okay, then you can see the next slide. Next slide. There we go. Jerome in the Vulgate included the passage. Again, as we mentioned before, he included Mark 16, 19, 20 in the Vulgate. He also includes John 15, 18 to 11 in the Vulgate. And because he states to Damasus as he's writing the preface, 
I used ancient Greek manuscripts as the basis for the Vulgate. So in Jerome's copies, which we take for granted would be older than Jerome, at least the ones that he calls ancient, would be at least as old as Jerome. So they would be made before Jerome's birth around the year 340. He states in the gospel according to John, there is found in many of the Greek as well as Latin copies, the story of the adulteress who was accused before the, the Lord. And there you see what he said, it, it just in his original Latin. In the same composition, which he's writing against the Pelagians, he offers the explanation that Jesus, as he wrote in the earth, wrote down the names of the woman's accused. This wouldn't be in the text that Jerome is using, but this would be what, what Jerome claims. That Jerome's copies were had a small interpolation to, to this effect. Using a phrase from Jeremiah 17, 13 mm. as the lens to which perceive that those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. The idea is that people in Jerome's time were interpreting Jesus writing on the ground as if writing the names of the woman's accusers, that those who departed from him were written in the earth after, after they depart from, from the scene where Jesus and the adultery are, that that will be a fulfillment of this prophecy from Jeremiah. That's the idea that Jerome is trying to get across. Yeah. I, I get it. It's also included in Exodus 31, 18, Deuteronomy 9, verse 10, and Daniel 5, verse 5, where there's the, the hand of God that is writing it down. So, like, I totally get what Jerome is trying to uh, to allude to with uh, these verses. Yeah. Now, that, 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 now, that doesn't mean that Jerome is correct in what he's saying. No, no, no. But, but it, it, does, it does imply something. The understanding was current in Jerome's time hmm. to that effect. Hmm. I'm so not making have... claims. I'm not making claims. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. <laughs> So in Jerome's copies that he used to make the Vulgate, it was there. And he says, he describes this as in the Greek, according to John, this was found in many of the Greek as well as Latin copies, including the copies that he used as the basis for the Vulgate. That, now by his wording, you can see that if it were in all the copies that Jerome was aware of, he would have said all. There would have been no need to say many, but how many is many? Well, if many were more than nine, then we have just as much evidence in the statement from Jerome as we as we do when we look at Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and Papyrus 66 and, six, and 75 and Codex T and Codex A and Codex C. If Jerome, when he's referring to many, is talking about more than nine manuscripts, uh, it's not nearly as lopsided as it may seem when you count them the way that they're counted by the advocates of the modern critical Greek text. Um, it gets uh, even pretty quick, pretty quickly. We can proceed to the next slide, please. What you see here is manuscript 1353. Um, when you hear about people saying, as Dan Wallace has said in his lectures, 
He refers to, we have also found the story of the adulteress at the end of, what will what, what you have, uh, the, being, the, the end of, uh, sorry, my, my memory is failing at this point, but the idea is that you have the God, and you have the story of the adulteress. Uh, we see it. The idea is that it appears to those who are rejecting it say that it appears to be floating around. And they use these examples. In one case, they use family one. As we just saw in the footnote that I read, it appears after John 21 25. But when you have that reference, you also have that note that we saw earlier or the, the people responsible for making the manuscript note that it was in a few copies exactly where we usually see it, right after John 7, 52. In manuscript 1533, you have it on what was initially a blank page of the manuscript, I believe right, right before the beginning of John. And so this is depicted as if it's just been floating around there some, somewhere and somebody took it and added it in manuscript 1533 here in this place before the beginning of John. But when you actually take a look at the manuscript, with it, which I wish Dan Willis would have taken the time to do, you, when you look at it, you see plainly this is a reading from a lectionary. It's a reading that initially was not in this manuscript, but somebody who later on owned the manuscript said it's missing that lection. And I won that lection, and so it was written on what had been simply a blank page of the manuscript. And there's no reason to ask, where does this come from? Because it says at the very top of the page, if you take the time to read it, it says from according to John, the normal lection for the, the normal rubric that you would find in a lectionary for this reading. And when you look at this text, you can see that it is not all of John 16, 9 to, John, John 7, 53 to 8, 11. It is John 8, 53 to 11. It is, in other words, the lection for St. Pelagius Day. And there is no reason why that should be a great mystery, as it seems to be, to certain scholars, because if they have taken the time to look at the manuscript, excuse me, to look at the manuscript that they're quoting from, they would see, as plain as day, this manuscript reading is for the eighth day of October for St. Pelagia. Her name is written, right? at the top of the page. It's hard to miss unless you want to miss it. So the inaccuracies have been spread about manuscript 1333 all need to be retracted, all need to be withdrawn. When manuscript 1333 was made, it did not have the passage in John, but it was later simply supplemented by a later owner and the reading from a lectionary was added. And that's all there is to that. We can hopefully proceed to the next slide and nobody will need to wonder 
about manuscript 2333 ever again. Because it's right there in front of you if people take the time to actually read the manuscript. It is somewhat saddening. I, I sense somewhat of a righteous type of anger with you because it is a very neglectful behavior. And I really sense that you really love, really love what you are doing. And yeah, I'm somewhat listening with a big smile in order to see it all disambiguate. But at another hand, um, yeah, these are very big mistakes. And I, yeah, I completely empathize with that. Yeah. I'll go to the next yeah. slide. I decline to try to read the minds of the people that have that. Yep. Let's, let's proceed. Yep. What you see here is Codex L. Now, Codex L does not have Mark 16, excuse me, does, does, does not have John 753 through 811. But there's more to the story. We shouldn't say, just, just say that Codex L doesn't have Mark's, I, I keep referring to the older passage, other passage, John 753 through 811. Uh, this, this particular slide looks, looks a lot like the other Sinaiticus Codex. So I totally understand the... <laughs> well, actually, actually Codex L's production date is probably in the 700s. So quite a, quite a ways removed from the 300 yeah. when Sinaiticus was made. Yeah, what quite a way. Here is a text from John, but where you see Mark, excuse me, where you see John 753, uh, then you have this blank space before, before chapter eight, verse 12 over here. The implication is that as the scribes making his copy of John, now, really, Codex L is not just John, it's all four Gospels. But as he's making this copy of the Gospels and it comes to this particular point in John, in his master copy, he has a text that just goes from 752 to 812. The entire story of the adulteress is missing. But the copyist recollects it and thinks, wait a minute, I know there was something here. It's not in my master copy, but I know in another copy it was there. And so what he does is he does what we saw in Codex Vaticanus in the case of Mark, Mark 1690. He leaves memorial space. Now, memorial space didn't have to be the full space that you would need to write the passage. Obviously, this isn't enough space. But simply by leaving the space, the copyist is expressing that he's seen copies that had this passage. Something was there in a copy, and he recollects that his master copy that he's using at this moment when he's making, making Codex L, um, one of, at least one copy that he recollects but does not, probably does not have access to contained the story of the adulteress. And that's why in Codex L, as uh, some steward of the manuscript has written down here, um, this memorial space for 
the recollection of that passage. That's what we see in Codex L from probably the 700s, maybe the 800s, but I'll put it in the 700s. So that's Codex L. Next slide. Next. We also have Codex Delta. By the time they categorized Codex Delta, they had run out of they had run out of English letters and had to use Greek letters. The Codex Delta is an important manuscript. It has lots of unusual readings. Also, it's uh, both Greek and Latin. Now, a person could spend all day in Codex Delta looking over its, uh, its odd readings. But probably the oddest is this reading that we have here. Uh, it's again, the same thing that we saw in Codex L. You come to this point, and then the, the copyist began to write, when you see on the, like the fifth line down there, on the left-hand side, began to write uh, John 8.12, right after John 7.52. But as he's writing John 8.12, he recollects, ah, um, something's missing in my master copy. And so he leaves the rest, of the, the rest of the page and a little bit of the next page blank as a souvenir of his memory. We don't have the manuscript that he's recollecting, but we have his memory of it uh, represented by this huge blank space in the manuscript. So we have this memorial space that represents the scribe's recollection of it, which means that I'm a copy as old as the production date of Codex Delta contained the missing passage. So, so it's incomplete to just say Codex L and Codex Delta don't have them. They also contain memorial space for the passage, which conveys the scribe making the manuscript recollected the passage that included so, so so that's very interesting what you're what you're mentioning those because those blank spaces don't necessarily mean that that's the end is that the scribe in that particular moment has as some uh, needs to find uh, the codex in order to fill that again so the, the memorial space so like wait I know there was something here but let me start off with another point and that's where yeah. yeah, makes and, makes and, a lot of sense. In the master copy that he had, uh, the verses weren't there. But he recollected them from a different copy. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Let's continue with the next slide. Yeah. Uh, this is Codex K. Uh, Codex K is a medieval manuscript, uh, number 0117. Uh, Codex Cyprus or Cyprus. Uh, has, uh, as you can see marked there on that first page, uh, there is where Mark, excuse me, where, where John 753 begins. It concludes here, I, I think that I, I've uh, marked every single verse of the Pericope Adultery is included in the text of Codex Cyprius. And uh, that represents an early form of the Byzantine text. 
So in the hundreds and hundreds of Byzantine copies, you will find these verses. And again, I have not sludged through all the copies you can find at the British Museum or the Vatican Library or at Duke University or else other places. But 1,500 copies would look like this. Maybe you could narrow that down to 1,400, but certainly uh, in about four out of five copies would look like this. They'd just be in minuscule script, which is just a different style of writing. So there we see Codex Cyprius, which includes the story of the adulteress in the usual spot. And uh, that's typical of the Byzantine manuscripts that you would find. Mm. Next slide. Yeah, sure. And, and this copy is one that is at, at uh, the Goodspeed collection in uh, the University of Chicago. And you see an interesting note. And this, I think, has something to do with what happened when you ask, well, if it's original, then how do you explain its non-appearance in so many Alexandrian manuscripts? And I think that what has happened is what we see indicated here. I think that in the very early church, Pentecost was celebrated very, very early. We see the church celebrating Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter two. And you can't get much earlier than that because that's where the church begins in Acts chapter 2. So Pentecost is celebrated very, very early. And as the Gospel of John, after it was written, uh, it, it enters the cycle of texts that readings were taken from for particular days. Just as we would take uh, Luke chapter 2 where it talks about the birth of Christ, well, usually on Christmas when you go to the church, yes, guess what you hear being read? Usually it's from Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 2, where the birth of Christ is being read. Well, the, the reading for Pentecost Day was from John chapter 7, and that's a natural selection because there John Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. In this copy, 2402, which is not particularly old, we see here before the text of John, verse 1 begins, you'll see this little stuff in, this stuff in red. And normally you would say, well, what's that gobbledygook? But what that is, is a symbol that the scribes would use. The, the scribes making manuscripts would know what it was. That means jump. That's simply an abbreviation for the word jump ahead. And this that we have down here at the margin, in the lower margin, you see there is a uh, although I'm angling that properly, uh, that means the adulteress. That means this part of the text was the story of the adulteress. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. On Pentecost, you were not supposed to read the story of the Avalos. You were supposed to jump ahead after reading chapter 7, verse 52. You were supposed to jump, as this, this would convey, to a lector reader known as the lector. Now, by, by, by the way, um, lector was a, an early office of the church. That would be the person in the church who would be doing the reading of the, the manuscript for the congregation. In the early church, most of the people probably couldn't read. The lector could read. And that's who these notes were made for. So it's to John. At John 7.52, at the end of it, there would be a note for the lecture that would say, jump ahead. On Pentecost, you would read, beginning at John 7.37, that's where your lecture would, would begin. But instead of ending on a note that says, the prophets are not arrived out of Galilee, they chose to include in the Pentecost lecture uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. And at John chapter 8, verse 12, you'll see in these copies uh, that have the lecture apparatus, the same ones that have the jump ahead will have resume here at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 12. And you also have these little dots here. That was where they would begin the lecture for St. Pelagius Day. Not at the beginning of the entire passage, but that was taught just a bit later. So that's manuscripts 2404. You see the scribes were using this sort of mark. And if a very early copyist were to be using this sort of this sort of text, which would have these little notes beside it, uh, my theory is that a, a very early copyist in the 100s was using a copy that had been prepared for the lecture. And he was very disciplined. And when he came to John, he would write John. He would write the text in front of him in his master copy. He was also very able to follow directions. And he was very disciplined about that. He was kind of a, I ask no questions. I do not wonder. All I do is follow instru instructions. <laughs> now, on one hand, that would give you a very accurate text. On the other hand, if the copyist had instructions for the lecture and he misinterpreted them as though they were copies for him, the copyist, he would do things like follow the instructions that you see here, jump ahead. And that means that he would jump ahead from the end of chapter 7 to 52 until he saw a mark that said resume here. And he would leave out the material in between. That explains, I believe, the lack of this section in Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus and Papyrus 66 and Papyrus 74 and Codex T, which again comes from the same locale, and about uh, 268 other copies about 88 of which are copies of the same set of commentary manuscripts. That is a mechanism that explains the phenomenon 
of the, the loss of this passage is not a matter of it being floating around. It has usually been in this location. And it was lost simply because the copyist, being very disciplined, followed what he thought were directions to him, although they actually were instructions to the election reader. They were instructions simply to skip ahead when you read the election for Pentecost from the end of chapter 752 and resume reading in chapter 8, verse 12. And you can see the same election marks in oodles of copies. And we can conclude, or we can continue with the next, next slide. Get the next slide, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And um, also, I mentioned when discussing Mark 1691, the old Latin Greaves, the, the chapter summaries that would appear in the old Latin copies. Sometimes those old Latin chapter copies, or chapter, chapter summaries rather, even though it was old Latin, um, sometimes the folks don't write Latin text, even though the Vulgate eventually dominated, they'd still like to have the, those summaries preserved along with the Vulgate text. And that's what you see here in a manuscript um, in, it preserves the text of the old Latin summaries that are the CY form. And again, it's called the CY form because there's affinities between the text used by Cyprian in the 200s and the text that's used for these chapter summaries. They kind of add up after a point. In chapter 30, or XXX in Roman numerals, you see the chapter summary and it's describing in the copy that these Latin summary chapter summaries are based on, in the chapter that it describes, there's a reference to the dismissal of the adulteress when Jesus said that he was the light of the world. So in, in this later copy that these chapter summaries are preserved in, those chapter summaries included the story of the adulteress in its usual, usual spot before chapter 8, verse 12. And that form, of the, that form of chapter summaries is assigned to the 200s, which is pretty early. <laughs> Just so, pretty early, all right. <laughs> so, so the notes that say, if you've ever encountered any commentators that say, oh, this text was only known later, or it was added in the Middle Ages, um, if we take these chapter summaries and assign them to the 200s, then clearly they would be based on a copy of John that was made in that time. So the idea that this is only a late passage is kind of refuted by this evidence. We can continue with the next Hallelujah. slide. Hallelujah. Ah. 
There were some claims by Daniel Wallace. Now, this is what a lot of Americans would would be. They, they, they see these claims and they say, well, the best textual critic we have says this. So who wants to question it? He says, you don't see the story of the adulteress in any fathers of the first millennium. Now, who would want to advocate this passage when, according to Daniel Wallace, nobody mentions it until after the year 1000, or after, at least the year 900. And when Daniel Wallace says, in some manuscripts, it appears as a separate pericope at the end of all four Gospels, just tacked on at the very end. Now there he's talking about family one, those manuscripts that have it at the end of John. He does not say that it is accompanied by a note in manuscript one and in manuscript 1582 that the passage was moved from where it was formerly found there right after John 752. Uh, when you don't get that, that information, when all you see is that it appears at the end of John, and you're not told about the note that comes with it, um, you would get the impression that Daniel Wallace seems to want to convey and seems to want to encourage, which is that it was just floating around somewhere. And they put sometimes they would put it here, sometimes it would go there, sometimes it would go before the Pentecost election begins. Sometimes you go after the Pentecost election ends. But the idea that Daniel Wallace seems to want to encourage is that it was just floating around. But when you look at the actual evidence, um, that's not the case. He says, we have three magical manuscripts out of the 322 that we have that actually have the passage. That's it. Now, I'm quoting Dr. Wallace. And what he says is, is simply false. When he says we have three master scroll manuscripts out of 322, that's the total number of manuscripts at, at the time that he's, he's making this lecture. That's not copies of John. That's manuscripts and magical scripts that we have in total. So that's including manuscripts of Revelation that don't have John. It's manuscripts of the epistles that don't include John. That's the total number. When you, so it's, it's, it's absurd and it is misleading to use the number 330 as the basis of comparison because there aren't 322 copies of John in magical script. There are only about 35 or so. And when you look at those 35, it's pretty much an even split between magical copies of John that have the story of the adulterers and magical copies of John that don't. So that statistic is simply misleading. And it is, I believe, one, one could say sad that Daniel Wallace's students are receiving this information that is ridiculously inaccurate. Okay, we can continue on to the next slide. You've already seen this slide, but there again, Daniel Wallace has described it as if it is just happens to show up at a particular spot in this manuscript that does show up. And, and again, as I already explained, 
This is simply the lecture lecturing for St. Pelagius Day. This has been taken from another manuscript and added into this manuscript, which initially did not have it. But it should not be imagined by anybody that it's just floating around. The floating around theory is manifestly false to the people that actually take time to look at the manuscripts that they are describing to their students. Uh, students, uh, I would simply say, double check the work of Dan Wallace. Don't take his claims at face value. For instance, that, that, that claim that nobody mentioned it until the 1000s. We can continue on to see how trustworthy that claim is. Continue on to the next slide, please. Go, go, going forward. We see it here. I think we already covered this in the, the old Latin capitula. We see it mentioned there in the usual place. Okay, continue please with the next slide. That was the last one. Maybe second. Uh, I think that, that that was it. You think that was it? Okay. Yeah, this was the last one. Okay, well, I apologize for not having more slides. I should have double checked the ones that I had sent you. Yeah. My... But if you look through the patristic evidence, you would see multiple writers from the early church using John 7:53 through 8:20. You would see that Jerome uses it. You would see that it's in the Vulgate. You would see many other writers using it. You would see some of the bishops of Rome using Ambrose. it. Ambrose taking it often to see for granted. You would see Ambrose using it. Uh, I have a book about this passage. Uh, I think it's for sale on Amazon for 99 cents um, American, which, which should be affordable to most folks. Mm -hmm. Also at academia.edu, they can find the text of that book. Now, bear in mind, uh, I have planned a, a, an improvement on that book. There is even more information that is not in that book, uh, which hopefully, will be in a future edition. Yeah, Lord but, willing. Uh, but but in that text, you will see, uh, in fact, if I have my my own Kindle copy, I can even list the very many uh, writers who use John 7.53 through 8.11. What is the name of the book? Uh, it is called A Fresh Analysis of John 753 through 811 with a tour of the external evidence. External. And when I describe that external evidence, mm -hmm. I can list just just some 
of the, the, early, the writers in the early church that used Mark 16 and 20. Mm. With all the words, if we could like, go ahead, Mick, finish, uh, finish your sentence. Well, I apologize for, for the delay. No problem. No, no, no. Don't apologize. I, I, I first, first I saw that, that John 8, 3 through 11 was the reading for St. Pelagius Day, October the 8th. And that will come into play when we consider the manuscripts in Family 13. Family 13 is a small cluster of manuscripts, which are notable not only for the, the unusual text they have, but also for containing most of the story of the adulteress in Luke after Luke, uh, well, near the end of the, the chapter, chapter. But in, in uh, what, what I want to emphasize is that what has happened is that somebody had a copy like the Family 1 copies in which the story of the adulteress was there at the end of John. But that doesn't do a lot of good when you're making a copy to be used in a church service when you're using a lectionary cycle. Yeah. In that case, it's convenient to have the text where, where you have them, their marks for. Now, usually the simplification that would be ideal for many churches would be simply to make a lectionary. And then you have all the passages in the order that as, as they're being read, at least for the Synex area. Mm -hmm. in, in Family 13, what you have, why you have the story of the adulteress in Luke is because it, it follows the reading for October the 7th. The reading for St. Sergius and St. Bacchus uh, two soldier saints who were very famous that many churches named after St. Saint Sergius and St. Bacchus. These were soldiers who were honored as martyrs. And in the election cycle, to honor them in the order in which they come in the Minologion would be for October the 7th. And so it makes sense that those readers who would want then St. Pelagius to be on, on October the 8th. So instead of leaving the text at the end of John, they put it almost immediately following on uh, the most convenient spot in Luke. So we have the election for St. Pelagius Day, October the 8th, appearing in family 13, right after the reading that comes for St. Sergius's day, October the 7th. And so it's, it's not as if scribes had a copy of the story of the adulterers just floating around out there. But progression was <laughs> deliberate and you can see it. You can almost see the workings of the minds of the scribes. It's not floating around out there. They're using a Caesarean copy that has the story at the end of John. And for the sake of simply making their copy that they're making in Family 13 easier to use for the lector who's going to be reading the lections to the congregation. So they move it to the location in Luke where it can be found. But wait, 
what it says in the English footnote, it doesn't describe anything about the elections. It just says where it's found. And so with just the English footnote, if that's all you see, and, and if that's as deep as you dig, you would say, yeah, well, that's so weird that it's in John at the end of John, even though in family one, he has a note that says, we moved it here after we found it back in chapter seven after verse 52. And people would say, it's weird finding it in Luke. But again, when you see that progression, it makes perfectly good sense. It never was floating around. It's simply gone through these steps that most that, readers are not aware of. That was the whole thing. Like when I first off heard uh, about the Pharaoh Adultera and that it was uh, a later tradition that was added on, always the thought, and I never really went into depth, but I was thinking to myself, like, where was it all the time? Like, really, the term of floating around, as you just mentioned multiple times, just like, is that really the best you can get? Is that the best explanation you have? Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the commentators who have said it was floating around are either unaware of this evidence or they're not paying attention to the evidence. But we see in the footnote in the Christian Standard Bible, it says that some copies have it after John 7.36. Well, the reason why it comes after John 7.36 is because John 7.37 is where the Pentecost lection began. All that has happened is that the copyist has taken the step of simplifying things for the, the lecture who's going to be using the manuscript that he's making. Instead of keeping John 7:53 through 11 embedded in the Pentecost lection, he's saving the le lecture the trouble of having to jump over the passage. Because he won't read John 7:53 through 8:11 on Pentecost. But he will read from John 7:53 to John 7:52 and then skip to John 8, 11. All that has happened in the copies that have John 7, 53 through 8, 11, after John 7, 36, is the scribe is simplifying things for the lecture. He is not taking John 7, 53 out of the ether and randomly placing it at John 7, 36. Although you would get that impression from all the people who have said, like like James White, the apologist, yeah. who seems to think that it was just floating around somewhere. Um, when you realize why these scribes are treating it this way, it makes perfect sense. Also, uh, some it's written that we see it sometimes after John seven forty four. Well. In real life, no Greek copies have, have the story of the adulterers after John 7.44. What it's being referred to is a few early Georgian copies. And by early in this case, I mean around the 600s, 700s, 800s or so. When the Georgian text is being re revised, um, 
they want to make it closer to the, their Greek text. And so in the Georgian text, somebody is using copy like family one. The Georgian text is also Caesarean because the Georgian text is based on the Armenian text that came before it, the kind of you know, mother-daughter relationship. And in the Georgian copies that have gone through this revision, the ones who made the revision of the Georgian text did not understand the instructions that were in the master copies, which said that we found the story back at this point, but they used the Eusebian sections as pinpointers. And mm -hmm. simply when you use the Eusebian sections as pinpointers, that's why you begin here at verse 44 instead of the usual spot. And so there again, um, there's no mystery as to what the scribes were doing, but you just have to pay careful attention to know what the history is of the text you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. So that accounts for all of those readings. When you ask, why is it at John 7, 36? It's because that's the beginning of the Pentecost lecture. That's just a copy. Those copies have been prepared for a lecture. Likewise, the copies that don't have it appear until after John 8, 12. They're doing the same thing. Pentecost is much more important on the calendar than the other days. It's a feast day. And so the primacy is given to the reading for Pentecost. And the other reading for St. Pelagius Day is either before or after. That's all that's going on there. They're not randomly taking it out of the ether and putting it at those particular spots. Likewise, the, in, the, in those Georgian copies, that's the same thing they're doing it. They're doing also the copies that have it at the end of John. Uh, they've done it, although they, they saw it, as the note in Family One explained in, in, in Manuscript One and 1582, 1582, their notes say, in a few copies, we saw this at John 7.52. That's the usual place. So there are very non-mysterious explanations for the trans where the text has been transplanted on this side or that side of the Pentecost lection. In Family 13, it's been transplanted right after the reading for St. Sergius. There's St. Plagius Day, October 7th, St. Sergius, October 8th, St. Plagius. Mm -hmm. But all of those are derived from forms of the text that had it in its usual place. As the old Latin evidence conveys, it was never normally in any place except after John 7, 52. Mm -hmm. The only mm -hmm. reason why it's in any other location is either because it was moved there in Family 1, or in the case of Family 13, for the convenience of the lecture, using a lectionary that would have St. Pelagius Day on the 8th of October, and St. Sergius and Bacchus on the 7th, earlier in Luke 21. Yeah, yeah, that explains. This was amazing. This was like... I had the privilege of having uh, an absolute masterclass and 
Yes, so many questions that I already actually had that it's just, yeah, already, we're already answered. Like I already looked up some of your sessions that you did, for instance, with Sam Shimon and, and Jay Dyer, for instance. Yeah, and, 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 yes, yes, I, I do have additional videos where I yeah. speak about uh, some material that Metro would overlap what we had. Also in those videos, uh, you would have in front of you the material that was that was left out about all the Patricia graduates well before the year 1000 that mentioned John 16, 9 through 20. Um, uh, there, sir. Are, there, there are literally, I believe, dozens of copyists, excuse me, dozens of Patricia graders that use this material, John 16, excuse me, John 753 through 811. Yeah, yeah, at, the yeah. end, at the end of my book, I simply offer a list of the, the evidence, not listing the individual manuscripts because that would be a very long list, but listing some of the writers that, that uh, I, again, I wish I had that slide. I, will, I will most definitely will include uh, the link down below to your blogs, of course. Uh, of course, your own YouTube channel. You also are lecturing on your channels. Some amazing yes. stuff I've already I think, seen. I think I, think I covered the story of the adulteress in lecture 18 and Mark 16, 19, 20 in lecture 16. But there was a complete series, or an almost complete series, of 24, lect of 24 lectures that I have given on textual criticism. If anybody who is not familiar with the, with the field, um, wants to be familiar with the field from a a point of view that does not is not so dependent upon the Alexandrian manuscripts and wants to see what the rest of the church was using, um, you could you can simply watch that video. Start with video number one and proceed to number two. But uh, I just wish I could find in the copy that I've got the text of my that, that shows how, how many uh, patient of Barcelona. Here we go. Patient of Barcelona is one who says uh, this is a writer from the 300s writing in Barcelona, and Barcelona back then was in the same place that it is now. So you get an idea of the locale that he's writing in. He's writing in Latin, and he mentions that the Lord spared even the adulteress who confessed when none had condemned her. Well, if you were listening and taking seriously Dan with Dan Wallace in his career course lecture, you would say, wait a minute. I was told that it wasn't quoted from until the year 1000. Nobody has ever heard of it. But here we see Patient of Barcelona, a Latin writer, referring to the adulteress. What has probably happened is that it simply slipped Daniel Wallace's mind to include the word Greek in his description. Because what he's done is he simply read Bruce, Bruce Metzger's book, and in Bruce Metzger's book, Metzger says, no Greek writer uses the story of the adulteress 
until about after the year 1000. Now, Metzger's comment itself needs to be clarified because practically as Metzger was writing his book, discoveries were being made at Tura in Egypt, in Egypt which would draw that in, into question. But uh, so let me just uh, list a few more of sure. a few more people. Hilary of Poitiers, another bishop from, from the 300s. Hilary makes a couple of references is in his book, in his commentary on Psalm 118 in parts 8 and 11, which are kind of like what Jesus says to the woman. Also in apostolic constitutions, excuse me, in apostolic constitutions, which we referred to earlier, composed about the year 380, it refers to Jesus and the adulteress. Again, the date, 380. 380. Those who think that it is only in later manuscripts need to consider this evidence. Also, Ambrose of Milan, another Latin writer, uh, unfortunately not mentioned by Daniel Wallace. I don't think he's mentioned by, by James White either, but the story of the adulteress was in the manuscripts that Ambrose were, were, was reading. Uh, Ambrose describes the story of the adulteress and quotes from it abundantly and quotes from it extensively. You can see this in his Epistle 26, which is, is written to uh, Irenaeus or to Studius. Now, you shouldn't think that this is the earlier Irenaeus in the 100s. This is a contemporary of Ambrose in the 300s. But as he's writing this letter, he describes this as being the acquittal of the adult, of, of the one in, who in the Gospel of John was brought to Christ accused of adultery is very famous. And so clearly it was in the copies that Ambrose was using. And I would think that in a city the size of Milan, that his copies were not the only copies like this. Considering mm. that Patient is in another locale in Barcelona, um, clearly, if you were to draw a line of descent from the copies in Milan and the copies in Barcelona, uh, you could go back and be at least as early as the composition date of Codex Vaticanus. Well, he goes on, Ambrose goes on, as we've seen, to, to describe the whole episode. And he talks about you know, what we saw before. Reforming the criminal, but not absolving, absolving the sin. And using the passage to, to teach. So there's Ambrose. But also, there was a guy who, in his writings, they were identified as Ambrose's writings for a while, then scholars began to study him a little more closely and say, wait a minute, this is a different person. This is a different person writing. He, he has Ambrose's style, but it's not, he's not using the same stuff. So he, we don't know what his name was, but he's kind of known as Ambrosiastri. Mm -hmm. And he began writing in the, the 370s. 
in his in his writings too, Ambrose Yaster, you know, imitating our, our the guy who wrote like Ambrose, but was not Ambrose. This guy in the three seventies or so. And again, it's give or take. The dates of uh, for him are not down to the date exactly. But he writes, when they brought their prostitute to the Lord, and a spirit who had been apprehended in adultery, most of the Jews said, let us begin to preach piety, not condemnation, but forgiveness. And so that's his two cents. He's using the passage. Then there's Didymus the Levine, who we saw before, as a possible author of the Eternitate, but it might have been somewhere else. But also, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, now uh, Metzger, when he's writing his, his textual commentary, Metzger probably was not aware of this, or he wouldn't have said our Greek sources don't include any mention of the woman caught in adultery until the year until the year one thousand or so, because in this text, which was only recently, like I said, in, in the sixties and seventies, being dug up and studied and translated, uh, it says that we find in certain gospels, again, not all gospels, but in certain gospels. A woman, it says, was condemned by the Jews for a sin and was being sent to be stoned. She was being sent to the place that was for that. The Savior, it says, when he saw her and observed that the people were ready to stone her, said to those who were about to cast stones, He who has not, not sinned, let him take a stone and throw it. But if anyone is conscious himself, not to, not to have sinned. Well, you sinless people, you can go ahead and smile. And then it says, no one dared, because they knew in themselves and perceived that they too were guilty in some things, and so they did not smile. Now, it says that it was found this in some Gospels. Uh, two things need to be kept in mind. First is that Didymus could read until he was about 12, and then he went, went blind. So as he's writing this, he's either recollecting the text from his, from his childhood or from something that's been read to him. When he says it's in some Gospels, I think Bart Ehrman has attempted to try to say, oh, it's not necessarily our four Gospels. And it's in some other Gospels, something else out there. But really, when when Orthodox writers are referring to some Gospels, the usual meaning of the term is a copy of the four Gospels, the, the text of Matthew and a Mark and a Luke and a John. And so the natural understanding of some Gospels is copies of the Gospels, like the four Gospels. So there's no reason to... to uh, Imagine that there was that Didymus was referring to some other non-canonical gospel. If he were, he probably would have specified it's in these non-canonical gospels, specifically the Gospel of Thomas, 
or the Gospel of the Hebrews, or something like that. These something that in some Gospels we find this story. Also, uh, we have another reference that we've already seen, a reference to Jerome. When he's making the Vulgate, he refers to his ancient Greek copies, and there it is. So we have that covered. <laughs> and also uh, Rufinus, uh, Rufinus, who was, again, kind of an off-and-on relationship with uh, Jerome, um, a friend of O. Uh, as he's mentioning the story about from Papias, when he says that Papias refers to the story about the adulterers. Now, this is in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history. When Eusebius, when, excuse me, when Rufinus translates that, he seems to take for granted that it's a reference to the story of the adulterers because he paraphrases Eusebius's statement. To refer to the woman who was called was the adulteress. Saint Augustine in Africa also uses material from the story of the one caught in adultery. And when he's writing a uh, uh, tractate 33 on John, he quotes chapter 7, verse 53, and he focuses on the rest of the passage in paragraphs 4 through 8. And he never expresses any hesitation or any reason to doubt the legitimacy of the material. Also, when he's writing against Faustus, now Faustus is a, a Manichaean, a false teacher, who happens to be in the same locale as Augustine. When he's writing contra Faustus in Book 2, Chapter 25, he mentions that some of those false teachers were like, like those pagans who profanely accused Christ of folly or madness because he looked for fruit on a tree out of season. We're referring to another passage. Or they accused Christ of childlessness. Excuse me. Or they accused Christ of childlessness because he stooped down and wrote on the ground and after answering the people who were questioning him, began writing again. So we see there in the text that Constantine, excuse me, in the text that Augustine has, it's in his text, it was also used by Faustus, and it was also used by some pagans who were making this jibe that Christ was behaving childishly when he wrote on the ground. Also, in adulterous marriages, Augustine offers a theory about why it's missing in some manuscripts. Now, I don't subscribe to what Augustine says here, but this is just what he says. He says that some, some Christians, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll just say the whole thing. He writes, Christ says to the adulterous, neither will I condemn thee. Now, again, Student of Daniel Wallace, who thinks nobody has mentioned, mentioned this until the 1000s, I imagine the shock that they must have seeing Augustine quote this passage repeatedly over and over in his writings. 
and see that Augustine refers to apostates using the main, using the same passage, and seeing Augustine refer to pagans who made fun of Jesus for writing in the sand. It's like, wait a minute, I thought nobody was supposed to have it until the 1000s. Here's Augustine in the early 400s using it. Here's Jerome making the Vulgate using it. He writes, Christ says to the adulterers, neither will I condemn thee. Go thy way, and from now on, sin no more. Who fails to understand that it is the duty of the husband to forgive what he knows the Lord has, the Lord of both the husband and the wife, the Lord has forgiven. And that he should not now call her an adulteress whose sins he believes to have been eradicated by the mercy of God as a result of her penance. And Augustine continues in chapter 7. He says, the pagan mind obviously shrinks from this comparison. In other words, the pagans just don't like it that Christ can be this forgiving. How can Christ offer forgiveness to this woman even before she, she says sorry? The pagan mind obviously shrinks from this comparison so that some men of spite faith or rather some hostile to the true faith who are afraid, as I believe, and that is, as Augustine believes, he was afraid that liberty to sin with impunity is granted to their wives. In other words, Augustine says, there are some men out there who think that with this passage in John, they would, they would appeal to this passage. If they, ever, if they ever committed adultery, they could say to their husbands, look, honey, Jesus forgave, they, forgave that adulteress, why don't you forgive me? And they pretend to, to be repentant when they, when they weren't really repentant. As, but Augustine says they would Im only imagine that this passage grants impunity to the wives. And so these men have removed from the text of Scripture this account of the Lord pardoning, pardoning the adulteress, as though he who said, from now on, sin no more, granted permission to sin, or as though the woman should not have been cured by the, by the divine physician, by the mission of that sin, as choice to not repent others who are equally unclean. And there he's referring to the other passage in which a woman who is known to be a sinner comes and expresses her repentance for sin by washing the feet of Jesus with her, with her hair. And the onlookers are shocked that she would do this, but she's actually expressing her her contrition. And while some unbelievers are pagans, would would not accept that. We see Jesus. We see that the Lord Jesus clearly was that forgiving by. By his action and by his saying, go and sin no more. Uh, time out, my wife is saying something. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. We're, we're doing fine. See ya. Oh, you. Yeah. That was just my son stopping in to say hi. And my wife is being very vigilant, but I'm, I'm doing well. Oh, we shall continue. Uh, That's a sign of love. <laughs> yeah. So, so you see that Augustine had it in his manuscript. He didn't have any doubt about it. 
and he thought that people had only removed it because they were concerned that some people might be afraid that their wives would abuse it by offering it as an excuse for adultery. Now, the, the question is, that explains why, one, why people might, might conceivably remove the part about the adulteress. But in the passage, there's still John 7, 53, and John 8, verse 1, and John 8, verse 2, that just have Jesus, no, people are just going through their own houses, and then Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives to resume his teaching. There's no reason why for Calvinists who are concerned about women abusing the passage to remove those verses. So for that reason, I don't accept Augustine's reason why the passage was removed. I think it has to do with those lectionary marks, like lection marks that I described earlier. I think with that, that theory of half copies with the lection marks to, to say in the reading for Pentecost, stop here and resume here, you know, jump ahead from here to here. I think it's very simple that a copyist very early in the Alexandrian text stream uh, thought he was following his, his, his instructions. Actually though, those instructions that he applied to the text that he was writing was really meant for the lecture in the text that he was reading. And by misunderstanding the lecture's notes or symbols, he very simply proceeded to make a copy of John that did not have John 753 through 811. And depending on how many copies he made, that copy that he made was very influential. And, and those copies would go on to influence not only the Alexandrian stream, but also some of the nearby textual transmission streams. Getting back to uh, Patricia references, Faustus, mm -hmm. uh, a writer who was contemporary with, with Augustine, uh, so shows that he referred Faustus, as, as Augustine is writing against Faustus, Faustus wrote, when the woman who was accused by the Jews by the Jews as sinful, as having been caught in adultery, and he absolved her, he told her to sin no more. So there's Augustine referring to Faustus as also using the passage. Also, Peter Chrysologus, uh, this is in Italy, in Ravenna, in his sermon 115, uh, he also uses the story of a woman caught in adultery. He says, Peter Chrysologus says, When so, brethren, brothers in the gospel, when the scribes and doctors of the law accuse the adulteress before the Lord, the Lord turned his face aside and turned to the ground that he would not see and punish the crime. Brothers, he so this is still still Peter Cruz Lawyer's story. His brothers, he preferred, I think, instead of delivering the sentence in the flesh, to write it in, in the dust. So, in other words, he's saying as Jesus is writing in the dust, 
he prefers to write in this rather than to make a verbal uh, affirmation of what the woman has done. Also, Leo the Great, this is a, a writer in Rome from 440 to 461. In his Sermon 62, as he's writing about why Judas could not obtain forgiveness through Christ, since Judas never did repent, uh, <laughs> Leo describes uh, some cases in which Jesus gives forgiveness, and that includes the occasion on which Jesus said, he said to the adulterers that was brought to him, neither will I condemn you, go and sin no more. Also, we have the story of a woman caught in adultery in Codex Beze. Now, Codex Beze is one of the earliest copies of John that we have. It's also a copy with the Western text. And Codex Beze has John 753 to 811 after John 752. It's an, in an unusual form of the text, but it does have there. Also, the old Latin evidence includes six, six distinctly non-Vulgate witnesses. Now, eventually the Vulgate, since it was ecclesiastically sponsored, it, it became the most used version in Latin by a long shot. Like, like 49, 49 out of 50 Latin copies is the Vulgate. There are some old Latin copies that are that have a mixed text that, that, that somebody still likes to use the old Latin form. And the old Latin evidence includes six non-Vulgate witnesses that support the inclusion of the story about the adulterers. And there may be four that don't. And uh, you can appeal to Jonathan Clark Borland's writing, uh, The Old Latin Tradition of John 753, if you want to kind of delve into the weeds and see more details about the Old Latin evidence. Codex Veronensis from the 400s. It's been mangled and is missing the whole page on which the Pericope Adultery occupied. But the same way that space considerations allow us to tell that in Codex A it wasn't there, and they allow us to say that in Codex C it wasn't there, using the same kind of codicological analysis tells us that it was initially in Codex Veronensis when it was made in the 400s. In uh, the Latin text in Codex D, which is Codex Beze, except Codex Beze. One of the unusual things about Codex Beze is that this page will have the Greek text, and then this page opposite it will have the Latin text. So, in a way, it's two manuscripts in one. Sort of, sort of transliteration. So Western. Uh, well, not, not so much transliteration, but the Latin translation. Mm. It has the Latin text and the Greek text on every other page. It alternates. And on its Latin pages, it has the story of the adulterers. If, if you to, to turn to page 134 on the recto, it has the story of the one with, with other words, there's a whole plethora of references towards um, the story of the pericope adultery, like 
before the, the year thousands. If you, well, you would see in Codex Copernicus, all, all that in C, it's a later manuscript, but it, it's an echo of a much, much earlier text. And on Folio 73 of Codex Copernicus, there is the story of the adulterers. Likewise, Codex Corbiensis, uh, if you know the old Latin sigla, it's FF2 uh, from the 700s. It also has the story of the adulterers. And its form is almost identical to the text in Codex Covertinus. But it doesn't have John 753. Also in Codex Sarzanensis, that's Codex, Old Latin Codex J, uh, from the early 500s or so, it's fragmentary, but there's enough of it to see that it was initially there. You, you keep going, like a codex. Uh, well, 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 using using Borland's data, he gives those that have it, and he also lists those that don't have it. But you can see when you examine the Latin chapter summaries, you can see that most of the old Latin included the story of the adulteress, and it wasn't floating around out there in the ether. It was right after John 7.53. Every time I hear about flowing around, I just cannot hold. I don't know if I need to laugh or I need to cry. Well, that theory is basically promoted in Metzger's book. And since so many people have depended on Metzger, that theory is very easy to find. But they're all basically going back Metzger's textual commentary and not taking an independent look at the manuscripts. If they did Whoops, take a look which, at the manuscripts... Which is their job. Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, they'd reach a different conclusion. Almost inevitably. inevitably. Also, Galatius, who's a bishop in Rome, in Epistle 100 to Andromachus, this is about the year 494, he states, now he's writing in Latin, but he says, didn't the Lord say when the accused adulteress was brought to him, if any one of you is without sin, let him first cast the stone upon her? He does not say, if any one of you is not likewise an adulterer, he simply appeals to if any one of you is without sin. He also quotes from, from further in the passage. He says, woman, where your accusers has no one condemned you. And he concludes, but go and furthermore, sin no more. And so there we can see Galatius. Quoting from John, 7, John 8, 7, and also from John 8, 11 to 12. The, uh, the Peshitta uh, is, is a version in, in, in a Syriac, and it's unusual because it usually agrees with the Byzantine text, but it does not usually have the story of the woman caught in adultery. So I imagine that the same phenomena that is seen or that can be postulated about the lecture's notes confusing the copyist causing him 
I'll give you a good reason to skip the passage. That also influenced the initial creators of the Peshitta, which is assigned to, you know, scholars in the 800s would put it in the second century, but nowadays it's usually assigned to the late 300s with the standardization, standardization happening in the 400s. Mm -hmm. And now if you'll, I'll continue, but you'll have to briefly excuse me. Uh, Rush, no, no problem. I just wanted to wrap it up. Oh, well, well I, I, don't, I don't want to wrap up. There's, there's more to cover, but I need to go to the bathroom. No, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's another Please, point. Yeah, yeah, go for ahead. A, a brief pause. I'll be right, right back. All right. My apologies for that hiatus. No apology necessary. <laughs> and by the way, uh, I should explain to those who are who, who are listening listening to your podcast. Um, I experienced a short. If you if people are wondering why my speech is not ideal, um, I had a stroke last month. So please bear with me. With my pronunciation, the the, the main Moving thing, right that, along. the main thing that the most people who are listening should be very grateful for the fact you are so gracious. Um, it oozes off you how much you love it, and uh, that's what we also love too. So there is no need. Okay. So yeah. Well, moving right along to Sedulius, around 450 in the composition, Carmen Pascal. 
the book four says, and while Jesus, while he is sitting in the middle of the temple, warning the, the nations to choose the right path and guiding the wanderer to reconciliation, behold, a multitude approaches, accusing a dishonorable woman and threatening to stone her. Also, in a particular manuscript at the British Library, Additional Manuscript 17202, which contains the Syriac Chronicle, which is sometimes called the Syriac Chronicle of, of Zacharias of Methylene, or, or pseudo-Zacharias, but uh, whether it's him or somebody imitating him, says that there was inserted in the Gospel of the Holy Bishop Moro, or also, also known as Bishop Mera, in the 89th canon, and really that, that should say it's 86th canon, a chapter which is related only by John in his gospel, and is not found in other manuscripts, a section writing thus. And so in this copy that was used by, by Bishop Mera, uh, that is referred to in Zechariah's Redor's writings, or pseudo Zechariah's Redor. It happened one day while Jesus was teaching, they brought him a woman who had been found to be with child of adultery and told him about it. And Jesus said to them, Since as God he knew their shameful passions and also their deeds, what does he command in the law? And they said to him, that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses she should be stoned. But he answered and said to them, In accordance with the law, whoever is pure and free from these sinful passions and can bear witness with confidence and authority as being under no blame in respect of the sin, let him bear witness against her and let him first throw the stone at her and then those that are after him, and she shall be stoned. But because they were subject to condemnation and blameworthy in respect of this sinful passion, they went out one by one from before him and left the woman. And when they had gone, Jesus looked upon the ground and writing in the dust there, said to the woman, they who brought you here and wished to bear witness against you, having understood what I said to them, which you have heard, they've left you, and they've departed. Do you also, therefore, go your way and commit not this sin again? Now, this is not the text in its exact form of John 7:63 through 8:11, far from it, but it is in Bishop Mara's copy of John, where we read expect normally to see the story of the one called adultery. Also, uh, Bishop Usher, uh, Usher was a scholar centuries ago, uh, mentioned that he had three other copies in Syriac that included the story. So at some point, somebody's revising the Peshitta, and in the course of revising the Peshitta, they're expanding it with this story, making it more like the Greek copies. Uh, 
a secondary page in manuscripts, uh, additional manuscripts 1447, which is in the British Library. Uh, that, that's a pretty early copy of the Shia. Uh, this copy is from the 400s or 500s. In the initial text of the Shia, it did not have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, John 8.12 would follow John 7.62. But on this additional page that's been added to the manuscript, it says, yet another chapter from the Gospel of John, the son of Zebedee. This uh, syntaxis, uh, the idea is that syntaxis means uh, this episode, uh, this pericope, is not found in all copies, but the abbot Paul, Mar Paul found it in one of the Alexandrian copies and translated it from, from Greek into Syriac. So this is a copy. The, the Syriac text, it says in this note, this was translated from a Greek text. So all the folks that are simply relying on what Metzger says and don't know about what this particular manuscript says will not be sufficiently informed about the story of the woman who called an adultery. Uh, continuing on, uh, he, uh, Abbot Mar Paul found it in one of the Alexandrian copies and translated it from Greek into Syriac. According as it is here written from the Gospel of John, the 10th canon, and again, this is a reference to the Eusebian canons. Canon 10 was four passages which are only shared by one evangelist. And John Gwynn said, then starts from chapter 7, verse 50, uh, Nicodemus saith unto them, giving it and the two following verses, just like in the Harkonnesian text. Our Harkonnesian was a, different, a later edition of the Syriac text, beginning in 753 and ending with 812, modified as in our manuscript. And he's referring to the manuscript when he was discussing. So it is in not the main Syriac text, but it is in the later expanded forms when they were trying to get the Syriac text to conform even, even more closely to the to the Greek text. You have the, the later forms of Syriac, some of which were made in Egypt, even though they're being made for Syriac readers, they were made using manuscripts in the 600s that were found at the Inatan Monastery, which is not too far Alexandria. So we could spend more time looking at, at manuscript uh, uh, Syriac. Uh, I think we've covered that all that needs to be covered. Um, going ahead and looking ahead, um, there is also Nanus of Seleucia, who was from Imda. He says uh, they ordained Moro Barkustan, the governor. That's another reference to Bishop Mera, who was steward of the church, a righteous man in his, in his deeds. And it says that Mera was fluent and practiced in the Greek tongue, having been educated, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it says that after he was in exile, he uh, then 
gave us this, this reference to this passage. It says that eventually, after after being exiled, as again the reference to to both Mr. Mera and his Greek copy that he had. It says that after he went from where he had been, he went to Petra, that's in Jordan, and from Jordan to Alexandria, he stayed there for a while. He built up a library, and in them there is abundance of profit for those who love instru instru instruction, those who are studious. Well, that's Bishop Mera. He's writing from the early 500s. His exile began in 517. His exile ended in 527. So it's within that window that he's finding this copy that was in Greek that he, that he refers to. Also, we have Codex Lambda. This is a witness from the 800s. It includes the story of the one caught in adultery, uh, and it has dots in it, or what are called obelisks. And these obelisks, are what, what, what are called uh, obelisk marks, um, some scholars see an obelisk mark and say, oh, that means the scribe wasn't sure about whether to include it or not. And that's all you would get from Metzger, too. From a Metzger's commentary, you wouldn't think that there was any other reason to put an obelisk, a mark of any kind, beside a passage, except to convey that it was thought by the scribe to be iffy, to be questionable. But in Codex Lambda, we see the obeli, we see those marks, not beside all, the whole passage. Now, in some copies, they are beside the whole passage. But they are, in Codex Lambda, there's only obelisk beside John 8, 3 through 11. And my understanding of Codex Lambda's marks is that they're intended to tell the lector as he's reading the manuscript, when you're reading for Pentecost Day, you skip this part. There wasn't really a standardized, a tightly standardized form of the Pentecost lection. And so on, on Pentecost Day, he was to skip John 8, John, John 8, 3 through 11. Uh, the beginning of John 7, 3, verse 1 and verse 2, those aren't obelized. So if you were to think that obelisk marks always mean this passage is iffy, um, whoever added these obelisk doesn't put them aside John 7, 53 and John 8, 1 and John 8, 8, and John 8, 2. The logical deduction to make is that these obelisk are not there to express doubt about the passage. It's simply part of the lectionary apparatus that's been added to the manuscript at some point, either in production or, or later. You, you, of course, you couldn't go earlier. But, uh, but uh, this note uh, accompanies the passage in Codex, in Codex Lambda. It says uh, the obliged part is not in uh, most of the copies. It's not in the copies of Apollinarius. In the old ones, though, it all appears. Uh, it is very mysterious how the note that says 
it's in the old ones. So it's all in the old ones. It's all there. Um, that note gets very little press in modern day commentaries by Ben Wallace or other American writers. Uh, the same note appears in manuscript 262. This note, the note goes on to say, not only does it all appear in the old copies, but this is referenced by the, but the, the, this passage is referenced by the apostles. Now what it's talking about is that book called Apostolic Constitutions that was made in about the year 380. In book two, uh, chapter 24, the story of the adulterers is a reference. And so the person making this note, he assumes that the apostolic constitutions is the actual apostles. Now really in real life, it's not the apostles, it's, it's the apostolic constitution. But uh, that reference from the year 3A is known, known by the person that made this note. And the same note appears in manuscripts 1282 and in 1187 and also in ministerial 1424 and so this note uh, has the understanding that seeing as how it was known that that far back that that's why the writer sees justification because it says in the old copies it is all there so that's Codex L. And, and by the way, Codex L is, is especially a significant copy. It's, it's uh, ranked higher than your average copy because in Codex L and some of the other copies that have the same note, it also has what's called the Jerusalem Colophon, which is a special note that appears at the end of each gospel, stating that the text was copied and corrected based on the ancient exemplars from Jerusalem preserved on the holy mountain. Now, not all of the copies that have this note have the word Jerusalem in there and might, instead of thinking about the holy mountain as Mount Zion, might be thinking about uh, Mount Athos in Greece. But some but the manuscripts like, like host Delta Excuse me, like the Codex Lambda, almost up, not quite. Uh, Codex Lambda has the Jerusalem colophon and includes the story of the woman caught in adultery. Also, manuscript 135 from the 900s uh, it has this note that says This also was discovered in ancient copies, copies that were ancient by the year 900. And so, the people making the making Codex uh, 135 felt obligated to write at the end of this gospel what follows here. And so that's why it's there. At, that's one of the copies that has it at the end of John. In manuscript 34, the 900s or the 1000s, has a note that says it's been determined that the passage with asterisk alongside it which would be John 7, 53-811, is not present in a great number of copies, yet it is found in the old ones. So there, instead of 
signifying doubt, the note affirms that it is found in the older copies. Also in manuscript 565, which is known as Theodora's Gospels, and it's written on purple parchment. It's uh, the kind of parchment that you would probably only find in the possession of a member of the royal family of the emperor of Byzantium. So this is a upper class copy. But it's damaged at the end of John. But after John 21, it has a, a note that is very similar to the note that we saw in Family One. That says the chapter about the adulteress in the Gospel of John not being present in the current copies was omitted. It was located right after does not arise. And then the text gets too damaged to read anymore. But you have another reference in this copy to say the same thing that we saw in Family One in Manuscripts One and Manuscript 1582. It says in the copies that had it, it was located right after does not arise at the end of John 7:52. Also in Ministerial 145, there's a note that says this chapter is not present in many copies. It's uh, the same note basically being a bridge. Also in Manuscript 106 from the 1000s, at the beginning of the passage, which says with the abbreviations, um, this chapter is in the Gospel according to Thomas. But this might be ascribed to simply trying to recollect Eusebius and not quite getting it right. There's another scholium that says that he wrote the sins of each of them, which is a, a lot like a reading that we find within the text of Codex U, Codex Nanianus. That's from the 900s. You could take the Patmos group of manuscripts and see that they have this line of descent going back to it. Uh, an earlier point. There's also, for those that were told in their classroom that nobody mentioned it until 1000, in the book that's called Synopsis Scripture Sacre in Greek, at one point this was thought to be by Athanasius. Now it's just considered an anonymous work from the 500s. And its author briefly mentions the one hence accused of adultery. Also in the work called Apology, Apologia David. And lots of scholars say this is somebody anonymous. This is Ambrose. Whether it was Ambrose or somebody writing in the same time as Ambrose, this person knew the text like this. And he, he, he was making his homily, and he would say, perhaps most people are taken aback by the title of the psalm, which you heard read, referring to a passage where in the scriptures they would re read a psalm. Perhaps some people are taken aback by the title of the psalm, which you have read. Nathan the prophet came to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. Likewise, those with weak faith could be disturbed by the gospel reading, which has been covered, in which we see an adulteress presented to Christ 
and sent away without condemnation. That's in Apologia David. That's from the 300s. A few paragraphs later, the author of the same text uses chapter 8, verse 11, again locating the text in a lection in the Gospels. Now, the Armenian version might be of special significance to you, being in Armenia, and the Armenian version points two ways. Uh, the Armenian version was made in the 400s, early on in the 400s, but it was almost immediately revised in the year 430 or so, because some, some scholars had been to the Council of Ephesus. On the way to and from the Council of Ephesus, they stopped by Constantinople and brought back from there what they considered to be a valuable copy of the Gospels and proceeded to revise the Armenian text. And so you have some copies in which Mark includes verses 19 through 20, but you have at least a, at least 100 copies, probably much more, that do not have Mark 16, 19 through 20. In some of me, excuse me, I'm getting my subjects confused. You have some copies that don't have John 7, 53 to 11, but you'll see that they have it at the end of John. And that's because this revision, the revised Armenian text, was made from a copy which had a Caesarean text, or a Caesarean text. Probably, I suspect, one of 50 copies that Eusebius, made, that Eusebius had made are the, on, on the orders of the Emperor Constantine. But in, in those in those copies, we don't have those, those copies. We can see the echoes in the Armenian text. Some have it, and some don't. Perhaps Eusebius had included a note beside him. Perhaps he had said, most of my copies don't have it, but a lot do. But uh, whatever they said caused the Armenian evidence to point in both directions. But if you look at lots of the earliest Armenian copies, they don't have it. At the same time, you have Esnik of Gol, who's one of the persons involved in the translation. And he quotes, um, I'm, excuse me, I can't get my subjects confused. It was um, Mark 16, 9 to 20, but that was uh, Esnik of Gol. But does yeah. that also include for the pericope adulterer? Any, any, uh, I would have to double check on that. Hmm. But, but the point is that some Armenian copies will have it, and some copies hmm. yeah. just a smidgen later won't have it. Uh, and what, those what, that do have it also have it at the, end of, at, at the end of the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. If you investigate the copy, the Armenian copy at the at the yeah. University of Chicago, they have a copy that's called the Red Gospels of unpronounceable name. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you know what? Uh, when you look at the Armenian copy, you'll see that it has the story of the adulteress at the end of John. 
which as we can see from the agreed copies in the family one, they have it at the end of John two, but they specify we've moved it here from where it was found in a few copies after John 752. So there is a case where it's been transplanted to the end of John, mm. and that's effectively the Armenian version, but in the Greek copies that it's based on, it descends from a copy in which it was in its usual place. Again, it wasn't floating around. The thing to see is it wasn't floating around. If there's something that people could take away from this podcast, it wasn't floating around. Yeah. Also in Codex Omega from the 800s, from Codex M in the 800s, you have it there in the text of John after verse 52. Sometimes it has asterisks. Most of the time it doesn't. But where it does have asterisks, those were not made usually. I'm not saying that nobody ever used asterisks or abroi to indicate doubt. But in the vast majority of those cases, with abroi or asterisk, those are simply part of the lectionary apparatus, which was simply made to convey to convey to the lecture using the manuscript as he's reading it to the congregation to tell them on Pentecost, don't read this part. This part is reserved for another day, namely October the 8th, St. Pelagius Day, usually. usually. So we also see uh, by the time the Voharic version was made, and by the time the Ethiopic version was made, uh, in, 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 those, in their transcription line, the text of, Mark, of, of John 7, 53 through 11 had, had been skipped. It was not included in either one. In, not, not in the Ethiopic version, not in the usual Baharic. The later Baharic uh, represent Baharic copies that have been supplemented to agree more with the Greek text that was then in use when they were made. That refers to a much later date. And the usual, also, also a Cassiodorus, uh, writing around, not, not before, uh, 580. Uh, we know he's, well, he kind of died then. But Cassiodorus uh, also is using a, a Latin text. Now, Cassiodorus, most of his copies would, would be in Latin. Uh, because all, most of the people in his day are speaking about him, when and where he was. Cassiodorus was no slouch at reading, reading Greek either. And he says, when he comments in the Psalms, in his exposition on Psalms, on Psalm 32, we ought to realize there are some to whom sins are ascribed. Paul, for example, was told, Saul, Saul why persecutest thou me? And then Cassiodorus goes on to say, after that quotation from Acts, he says, in the gospel, and by this time, it's obvious by the gospel, which, which gospel he's reading, because it's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in Luke, it's in John. In the gospel, Christ said to the woman in adultery, go and sin no more. So Cassiodorus is another one of those many patristic writers 
who Ben Wallace says Ignored. didn't say anything <laughs> about the story of the woman caught in adultery mm. before the year 1000. But, sir, sir uh, Mr. Schnapp, uh, we have, I don't know, four hours. I don't know if it. You can include Gregory the Great and a lot of other Latin writers as people who have affirmed and used the story of the woman caught in adultery in its usual place right after John 7.52. Also, there are the, the Palestinian Aramaic lectionary shows that it was used by the time the Palestinian Aramaic lectionary was made, uh, it was had already been moved, like it is moved in family, family one, to the end of John. The people who made the Palestinian Aramaic but text. There's a question that arises up in me. With all this proof that we have already, for Mark 16 and for the Pericope adultery, will the opinion of the of the scholastics, the, the opinion of the scholars, will that change by the time? Is that possible? As long as we give it a good case? Probably the work of Hort, the work of Hort was so influential when he when he pre presented it back in 1881, was so influential, and so many scholars said, well, yeah. Just read Hort. What else is there to say? Many of them have probably never considered a lot of this patristic evidence. Because Kurt Olin said, we've got pretty much the exhaustive evidence, but actually he has in his textual apparatus only a very small slice of it. The Epistola Apostolorum uh, wasn't wasn't discovered until after Hort had written. Many other manuscripts weren't made until after Hort had written. Meanwhile, Hort and then after Hort, Metzger, and if you read Metzger's textual commentary, and you've already read Hort's commentary in his introduction, and you've seen Hort's notes on select readings, it's not hard at all to determine that many times Metzger is just rephrasing things that Hort has said. So, Metzger's textual commentary was a text that was designed to accompany the United Bible Society's edition of the Greek New Testament. Well, the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament is almost 99% Alexandrian. They pretty much take all the Byzantine manuscripts and say, well, these are Byzantine. What's well, it kind of set those aside? and not consider them individually. If a note in a Byzantine manuscript says that all the old manuscripts contain this, this passage, we're barely going to consider that worth mentioning. And so the Byzantine text has, has not gotten, I think, a fair shake from modern day textual critics okay, so, ever so, since. So there, so there at least actually that the Byzantine stream for as a figure of speech is very much negated. Uh, yes, uh, Hort thought that it had been put together in the time of Lucian of, of Antioch. He thought Lucian, or it might as well be Lucian, or somebody about in the same time and place, had put together the, the Byzantine text and created it using some Western copies and some Alexandrian copies and pretty much smooshed them together to form an early the earliest form of the Byzantine text. In other words, that everything unique 
in the visiting manuscripts can be thrown out and we don't need to think about it anymore. And we just have to consider the Alexandrian or the Western. That, that's the two earliest forms uh, in, in, in Hort's world. Now, keep in mind that Hort did not have, uh, well, he had one papyri. He didn't have any other papyrus manuscripts. Uh, Greenfield and Hunt had not done their work at Oxyrhynchus when Hort wrote in 1881. Uh, they didn't come along for another 20 years. If he had had the papyrus copies that Greenfell and Hunt had dug up, he could never have proposed that theory because in some of those copies, such as papyrus 45, you don't have the Byzantine text exactly, but you definitely have some Byzantine readings and they are substantial. Uh, a man named Harry Sturrs uh, compiled them and he said, you can't discount the Byzantine text or say that it is as late as Hort said it was because you have these early Byzantine readings. Now, where we, where, where we expect to find the Byzantine text in use, that is in Byzantium, uh, we don't have copies that old. Papyrus simply didn't last that long in that part of the world. And so it's surprising to find Byzantine readings in, found in manuscripts that were in use in Egypt. And the implication is that they had their own copies, but these were based on some copies from elsewhere that slipped in to the text used in Egypt. And so you have these Byzantine readings. Basically, you have to throw out Hort's theory. Uh, horse theory could not be maintained consistently today. Uh, the Byzantine text is sometimes said to have been standardized in its fullest form, which would include not, not just the gospel text, but also in the minor epistles too, in, in the, what's called the, the Harkling form of it. But even in the Harkling form, there are readings that imply that it, it goes back much, much earlier than was previously thought. And that needs to be considered when people are reading materials that, they, that are basically just recycled Metzger and they're reading material from Metzger, which is just recycled Hort. Uh, the yeah. evidence is much, much broader yeah. as we've, we've seen. So, so we see uh, going through the years and going through time, do you think that in the future that there will be possible that the doubt of, uh, of particularly these two uh, sections? Well, uh, yes, a version was just recently made in, here in America. Uh, Lutheran, some, some Lutherans got together and made a translation, and it includes both Mark 6, 16, 9 through 20, and includes John 7, 53 through 8, 11, hmm. and is more accurate in the footnotes about those two passages. Hopefully, the footnotes in the NIV and the New American Standard, which again, the New American Standard continues to be continuously updated. Uh, perhaps someday they'll learn how to update a footnote. Uh, hopefully, the footnotes will be improved and include the, be, and allow the influence of some of the witnesses that I've mentioned here 
the old Latin chapter summaries from the 200s and the apostolic constitutions from the 300s, etc. We'll give them the, the due. Hopefully, let's, in the let's meantime, we have to simply uh, tolerate footnotes like we have in the Christian Standard Version, which seem designed to point the reader in a direction of rejecting the passage. Um, yeah. A fuller, closer consideration would point in the opposite direction and say that, well, what we see the text widely dis distributed. We don't see it in the Alexandrian text, but there is an explanation of that, that the copyist, an influential copyist somewhere early in the Alexandrian text, simply saw marks in his manuscript that were intended for the, le the, the, the lector, and he misinterpreted them as if they were meant for him. Mm. And so he did what he thought he was being told to do. He skipped from here at the end of John 7.32 to here at the beginning of John 8.12, skipping the passage in between. That was exactly what the lector was told to do. And so what, ha what has happened is that a copyist, all copyists in the Alexandrian text stream, and some copies, copies, transmission streams nearby. One influenced Codex N, for instance, uh, which is primarily Byzantine, but does not have the story of the woman called the adultery. Mr. So, Schnapp, I yes. would I like to ask. It's getting very, not it's very late. It's getting almost sleepy time for me right now. Yes, I understand. Yeah, it was. So I much. To take a break as well. Yeah. I hope that with just what I have shown you so far, um, you the footnotes do not really give an accurate picture of the evidence. One thousand five hundred copies include include John seven fifty three through eight eleven in one form or another. Uh, only three Greek copies do not have Mark sixteen nine through twenty. And it is attested in the second century by Irenaeus, by Tatian, by Justin, and by the Epistle of Hospitalum, if you carefully analyze its, its, its narrative. Um, I think this establishes plainly that the footnotes in the NIV and several other major translations uh, need to be revisited to take all this other stuff into account. And people should consider the Byzantine text as having much more authority than it's been given by their textual critics who have given them the basically 99% Alexandrian yeah. uh, NIV. Yeah. This is so much precious information. <laughs> That's why the reason that I'm trying to plan in podcasts like this. So I would say... To finish it off, Mr. Snap, so much, so so much gratitude for you, so much gratitude for the Lord that this was able to do to do this. Uh, I hopefully uh, th there are of course a couple of other points uh, I would like to address with you in the future, which I already uh, have um, attested to you uh, in in the messengers. Yes, but that's that'll be all future music. Um, 
there are of course a couple of people who like to attack the Bible and they have like their own research done. But I know that once that once I address it together with you, then that will be like swept away off the table. Um, 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 just to mention, uh, Vigilius of Ephesus uh, provided support for the Periclean Ultra. Prosper of Aquitaine also mentions the story of the woman adultery. He's writing around the year 440 in his book, Call of All Nations, Call to All Nations. Uh, other Latin writers can use it. Um, the Venerable Bede, uh, a notable scholar of his day, uh, Bede shows he's writing in the 700s, and Bede makes substantial comments about the story of the one called Nobi. In fact, in Codex Laudianus, almost certainly that is a copy that has survived to the present day that was used by the Venerable Bede. And you can see in its text includes the story of an adultery. And finally, by, by the time we reach Euthymius, Zygmunus, by, by this point we're in the middle, middle Ages, and you can just look through the hundreds of copies. Oops, never mind. You can look through the, the hundreds of copies that include that, the passage. And above there are about 270 that don't have it. And those within that 270, about 80 at least, are, in, are a particular group that has, that basically represents the same commentary. In other words, you can boil those copies down to one voice rather than 80 echoes of the same voice. Mm. Yeah, that says a lot. Uh, what is the book that you are quoting of? Uh, the, the book that I'm reading is the, the book that I've written. Uh, a fresh ana analysis of Mark 16. Yeah, a, fr a fresh, yeah. I write a, a word with that. Yeah. Uh, now, now, I call it a book, but it's actually, uh, for, for the time being, uh, can be downloaded from Amazon as simply a Kindle book. Yeah. It can yeah. be downloaded to Kindle from Amazon. But I, but I prefer actually the hard copy, but the, the, of an, oh, I can buy it from Amazon. It take, take about like one or two months for it uh, to arrive here, but it'll be worth the read, 100%. I, I, I self-publish it on Amazon as yeah. a Kindle book. So yeah. at the moment, you can't get it as a book. Uh, perhaps, though, in the future... That will change, and you will be able to get it as oh, a book. Okay, okay, all right, so with, as a Kindle. No problem, then, then I will read it via this. That would yeah. be also amazing. For the time being, you can get it on your computer screen or on your Kindle screen for 99 cents. 99 so cents? It's, it's cheaper to put that's a, that's pixels a steal. on screen. Yeah. It's simply cheaper to put pixels on the screen than it is for ink on a page. Yeah. And that's why I have made it, hopefully, as affordable as it can. To, to anybody that wants a copy. It's not about the affordability. It's about, it's about the information that's in it. And uh, thank you for your zealousness. Thank you for your love. I really feel the passion that you have for, for his word and for him in itself. So there's so much admiration and there's so much learning to do from my side. And there's so much uh, proud pride in, in 
the scholars actually that the people refer to the yeah, he said this and he said that, but yeah, you know, he's wrong, right? But though he's a scholar, yet he's a human. Look at this scholar. Look at <laughs> yes, on my blog, uh, I go through specific statements that Daniel Wallace has made. Yeah, that simply cannot be sustained by a person who is familiar with the actual evidence. Yeah, so that's all on my blog for those that are interested in uh, yeah. in that. The, I will the, definitely. Yeah. I will definitely put it in the in the description. Mr. Snap, thank well, you once again. Um, I think we have drawing to a conclusion. Bartan, if you would like to close this out with prayer, I I've close. enjoyed our session. It's gone on a lot longer than I thought it would. Likewise, it has been a blessing indeed. It has an absolute, like. Uh, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and I'm gonna to think to myself, like I just got a master class from a master himself. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna end it off uh, with a prayer. Let's pray. Our beloved Father, our beloved Son, our beloved Holy Spirit, thank you for having this amazing man, having this zealous lion for the faith, educate us, having him put his thoughts into the stream for us. So thank you, Lord, for putting us together. Thank you for the teachings. Thank you for the amazing words that have strengthened our faith. Let us unshackle all the doubts that is put into the world deliberately or undeliberately. Thank you for the amazing work the Holy Spirit has done throughout the history, throughout the church, throughout your work, so that you may touch our hearts. Our Father in heaven, I want prone to pray to you so that you may bless Mr. Snap, him and his family and his ministry. And may he be blessed with all the best that you have to offer to him. I'm very much honored that he has been a part of my life for this short time. And I really would like to see him working together with me again in the near future. Bless him, bless his family, bless him with health, bless him with all the best that he has to get in this life. And may we all become one with you again, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, I say amen. 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 And may we all be blessed by John's account of Jesus' encounter. But may we all be blessed May we all be blessed. By John's account. By John's account. Amen. It's a great passage about the forgiveness that Christ offers. May it move others, even outside the church, to realize Christ offers us forgiveness. Even when we're, we've been caught in the act, if we turn to him, he's willing to forgive us. Amen. That's our great Savior. That's our grace. By grace, by Christ, by faith. Yeah. Amen. I'm going to...